Welcome to the Directors Club with Brad and Al. Here over at the club, we take a look at the films of a single director over the course of an episode. We look at their breakout films, career touchstones, uh, personal labors of love, and hidden gems that have fallen under the radar. It can be pretty amazing to see what uh, themes and connections to other films come up when you look at a director's whole body of work. Come join us on the film journey, which in this episode is a journey to the West. West Spain, that is. Well, howdy, Al. Ah, howdy, partner. We are talking about Westerns. I am excited about that because these include, I know, some of our favorite films, mostly from this director. We finally get a chance to talk about Sergio Leone. And if there's any director that anyone listening would like to hear about, or if you have any comments or feedback for the Directors Club, please uh, send us an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. You could also subscribe to us over at iTunes. We're part of the Now Playing Network, which includes a lot of great shows. And I just wanted to send a shout out uh, to a show that was kind enough to invite me on earlier in the week, which is Fresh Perspectives, hosted by Rebecca Martin. Uh, Rebecca had uh, myself, as well as our friends uh, Colin Suter and uh, Patrick Ripple, who is one of the founders of this show, there to talk about King Kong, which is a lot of fun and hope uh, you'll give that a listen. But uh, other interesting things have been happening uh, here on the network too, right? Uh, yeah. In fact, the Director's Club has a special bonus episode that we've just put out um, where whereby founder and former host Jim Lechkowski goes and uh, takes a look at Every single film from made uh, released in 1987 with the help of um, uh, Colin Suter and uh, Eric Childress. It's a a big two parter, and so uh, go and uh, check that out to see uh, all of the interesting and uh, uh, notable films that popped out in that year. But in terms of like the notable films in the Western genre, like we uh, we're going this episode to take a look at Sergio Leone, as Brad said. A very, very groundbreaking um, uh, director, but to, before we even get into his work, we should kind of lay down the, some of the groundwork for what westerns were kind of like uh, beforehand, and what did what did Leone do to upend the formula? Right, he, he was the ultimate game changer. I I can can't think of another genre that was so singularly uh, advanced. Uh, well into its history by by one director but to kind of before we get to that we kind of have to establish just how important uh westerns have been to movies in general one of the very first uh narrative films ever made was a western the great train robbery back in 1903 and from that point on uh there have it has been one of the most uh successful uh, genres uh, in hollywood and worldwide Probably the turning point was when uh, John Ford made Stagecoach in 1939, which not only established him as one of the all-time great directors, he had, he had already done some amazing work before then, but that was really kind of the film that that brought Westerns into the, the what we think of as their golden age and introduced John Wayne to the world. 
And, uh, and John Ford uh, continued on with such classics as The Searchers and The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Some other great uh, classic directors are Howard Hawks, who did Red River, Rio Bravo, uh, Bud Bedecker, who worked with Randolph Scott and did uh, films like The Tall T, and uh, Anthony Mann, who did about uh, five westerns with Jimmy Stewart. And then you have uh, just kind of singular uh, acclaimed western that uh, people know and love from High Noon uh, to Shane. Yeah, is there any particular ones that like strike you as both like a favorites of yours or ones that are particularly like kind of what the ultimate of a pre-Leone Western could have been? Well, I think John Ford really is the man in that regard. He used the Western as a way to tell the story of America. And, you know, I think there's a lot of, preconceived notions about westerns i know i had them before i got into them i thought that uh they were all kind of just kind of yahoo movies and a little simplistic but then as i started watching more of them and especially the works of john ford uh showed some really key levels and probably the searchers might be uh the best example of a way in which even the traditional western started breaking the western rules of the good guys in the white hats the bad guys in the black hats um john wayne who at this point in the 50s was the Western superstar, started playing more questionable characters. He started actually in a movie called uh, Red River, uh, where uh, he uh, he played uh, a very flawed uh, anti-hero. And then in The Searchers, he played a character who was uh, so disturbed, a racist character who ended up being the influence on Taxi Driver. <laughs> yeah. Oh wow, that's uh, yeah, that's manages to be quite a um influence across both like um uh time and distance. How about you? Do you have any uh favorites of the classic era? I mean, uh the the westerns I kind of I kind of want to go in like def- I kind of are very strict on my definitions on a western. Like it's kind of I kind of like think that especially for it is as a genre, it is kind of about a particular thing, like some a very specific aspect of american culture to me like the the western is kind of about um exploring the frontier individuals and small groups exploring a an area where there's no law there's no rules the freedom and opportunity are are like literally as limitless as the horizon could be and and it's an example of how do you define yourself in a world without these without these kind of like limits um I think to me, some of those that like really reflect on that kind of um, that notion is I think Red River is w- one of those. Um, the Searchers is like there uh, um, is also really good at exploring that. What does like what does it mean for to, to be uh, like a, a cowboy, especially on the transition period for when like the cowboy was becoming himself an endangered species. And I think my I think my favorite pre-Western up on pre-Leone Western, I mean, would be Anthony Mann's, like, Naked Spur, where, where it's about four um, unique characters who are involved in a kind of a, a dire trek across the wilderness and how their own personalities and wants, needs, and uh, conflicts all make a very complicated relationship out of, um, out of uh, the interactions they have to make. 
That's a fascinating one because Jimmy Stewart, who's always been known uh, for the nice guy roles, gets a, a little bit darker on that one. Mm-hmm. Yes. And and I mean, I think maybe that's kind of one of the things that a spaghetti westerns that that came out um, gave a little more light to to the ironically to presenting people in a darker manner. Like they there was a sense that like that it's really interesting to look at the that genre and what what are they trying to do to use for Western tropes like uh, uh, cowboys and Indians and gunfights and so on. And where and uh, the darker outlooks that they have, like um, like one some things like the spaghetti westerns, they there never have people sweated more, right? <laughs> <than> possibly <laughs> in the gladiator epics, <laughs> as um uh, as through like these as through these films, like whereas before, whereas like a John Wayne would have a mostly unruffled, almost uh like pristine outfit through a lot of his a lot of his situations. The characters in spaghetti westerns like have they're scruffy their clothes are ragged they're like have have uh beards in different stages of of subtle and um and it, it is not afraid to get them incredibly dirty in both a physical and and often a moral sense too and you have a much looser moral code like like you mentioned uh even when john wayne started playing some some anti-heroes let's call them he was still it it was done in a way to say oh well this is something very unusual here we have to look at this film differently because john wayne is playing against type but with the spaghetti western we start to view the anti-hero as the norm as the hero somebody who will uh shoot first and ask questions later somebody who is uh, will put won't necessarily be fighting for justice but might be just fighting for greed and so there becomes this uh definite uh blurrier line between hero and villain although the villains in spaghetti westerns tend to be so nasty that it gets drawn anyway yes um uh, uh the now there was a series of like um films that were made in this quote-unquote spaghetti western mold mostly uh, they're called that by the way because they were um uh filmed by in and by italian production companies usually in um uh the areas of spain um and uh done of course to, done to capitalize on the american westerns uh but into the breach guns and uh, steps in um a man named sergio leone and leone has had a had a kind of a really interesting uh precursor to the westerns he went as i th- i believe his one film that he made was a um kind uh was of a totally different genre right right and uh that was a, a movie called the colossus of Rhodes, which is one of those uh, sword and sandal epics which were all the rage in italy at the time this was a 1961 film uh in the late 50s uh the hercules movies came out with steve reeves and that was the biggest thing in italy and in europe so all italian productions kind of started working on these uh, old-fashioned epics and that's where Sergio Leone uh, uh, made his bones and and did a lot of uh, assistant director and uh, other kinds of work but he also worked on some Hollywood films he had some involvement in Ben-Hur and so by the time he starts his uh, first directorial effort he's already uh, been involved in a number of films so 
when we get to talk about the Colossus of Rhodes, it is Sergio Leone who has not yet become Sergio Leone. It's pretty much the end of his apprenticeship because what we're going to find out when we start talking about the Westerns is he was going to develop this entirely new and original style, but he hadn't done that yet. Uh, the Colossus of Rhodes is, is kind of fun. It's about, um, uh, island uh, off Italy roads in between the time of the Greek uh, Empire and the Roman Empire. And you have uh, basically this island that wants to become a regional superpower, and they have enacted this gigantic statue about the size of the Statue of Liberty, except uh, unlike Our Lady Liberty, this one uh, is will block the only entrance to the island and will dump fire on you if you try to leave without permission. A statue <laughs> of anti-liberty. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, and it, it turns out as the movie goes on, this statue develops more and more uh, weaponry and powers and becomes more, more, more functional uh, as a weapon but uh the problem with this movie aside from that it's you know a bit of a a, a, a b picture to begin with is that they they brought in an american lead as is they would do very successfully starting with the next film we'll talk about. But here they brought in a fellow named Rory Calhoun who uh has done a lot of uh pretty forgettable Westerns in the States and uh, probably the, the, I looked at his filmography, the movie that was most prominent that I recognized was uh, river of no return with Marilyn Monroe and Robert Mitchum. Hmm. Mar uh, Marilyn Monroe in a Western. I'm not sure that that was a Western, <laughs> <Wow>. but <laughs> that'd be, that'd be yeah. really interesting. I mean, I have not seen, I, I'm, I'm not familiar with this actor, but uh, with a name like Rory Calhoun, he had better be making some westerns. So you got picture um, somebody really trying to be William Holden and failing, and ending up <laughs> kind of like a mixture of William Holden and Alan Thicke, but who feels <laughs> the need to smile like Gene Kelly constantly, even when he's being tortured, even when he's being double crossed. It's a really, really weird performance, uh, you know. God, um, stab. Among, yeah, God, <laughs> a chariot race. <laughs> so uh, now, ha having said that, anything involving uh, Rory Calhoun is kind of tough to watch in Colossus of Rhodes, but it does have a lot of good action sequences. Leone has already figured out how to how to film I exciting action from the sword fights. To, and one sword fight that's probably the best scene in the movie is uh, on top of the Colossus, so that's kind of fun. He's also got a large scale earthquake, just you know, just to make things interesting. Uh, I would say that if you're a Leone completist, why not? Otherwise, wouldn't hurt to skip it. <laughs> well, I mean. Uh, just on your impressions of seeing it, how much of that, like how much of the, the efforts that came across into his later work, aside from the action sequences, pretty much none. Okay. That, 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 right, that, that is why I, I think it's appropriate to look at uh, his next film as, as the beginning and to look at this film as kind of, 
his graduate thesis. <laughs> his graduate thesis. Yes. Yeah. yeah I mean, and uh, and yes, and and what a graduation it was. Like, um, uh, with honors, you could say. Uh, out in, in 1964, um, he um released a film called Fistful of Dollars. Um, not to be confused with A Fistful of Dollars, which was on all the promotional materials. The title card actually says Fistful of Dollars. <laughs> um, uh, starring Clint Eastwood as a man named Joe, or at least that's what the residents of the town call him. He enters that town, uh, which has been uh, riven by violence between uh, two uh, different uh, warring uh, factions of criminals, the Rojos family on one side and the Baxter family on the other. He takes residence over in a uh, tavern at the exact midpoint and um, uh, finds out about one group, finds out about the other, and then proceeds through uh, different levels of allegiances and loyalties to go and play one side against uh, the other. Um, and for a unknown sense of gain, if if not just for money. Right, right. And if that plot sounds a little bit familiar, then you might be a fan of Akira Kurosawa, who just a few years earlier made a, a great film called Yojimbo with uh, that very same plot that Leone borrowed, but... Uh, very, he borrowed very little other than the plot. The uh, the details of how the film unfolds is very different than Yojimbo. Uh, f- uh, for sure, but I uh, but uh, I believe he um, uh, Kurosawa was a little bit enough of a fan to like write Leone after the movie's release and say, "Hey, you know what? Your movie's really great. It also happens to be my movie." <laughs> and <laughs> to which then the production company needed to take a percentage of the profits and get them out to uh, Kurosawa and his company. Um, and yeah, when, upon looking at like fistful of dollars, like what kind of emerges is just, um, a pretty, um, singular kind of viewpoint that was, uh, heretofore really not seen that much in, uh, that much in Westerns. For example, the, uh, Eastwood's character, his motives in, in, don't ever really have an implication at the beginning that it's a, he's a good guy, <laughs> He is, uh, he, um, it just appears that he's just like b- playing a side against the other through not just greed, but just his own kind of maybe quasi sadistic <laughs> enjoyment, uh, enjoyment of the situation. And the, and the world itself is, uh, seems to be like just la- completely lacking in any like sense of moral authority at all. There's uh, the sheriff is just hangs around with the one, some of the Baxters, basically. But at no point is there any hope of a marshals or judges or rule of law. It's just this one big street upon which has um, uh, a group of bad people on one side and a group of bad people on the other. Right. If, if traditional Westerns are about civilizing the West and perhaps saving a town from uh, anarchy or from, from criminals, uh, here the town is already gone. So, you know, Eastwood does not come in with any noble intentions, uh, but he does come in with, 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 uh, a real, real style because, uh, one of the the interesting things on reviewing these films is that I think we often think of Eastwood's character as simply as the embodiment of the uh, the strong silent type, but he is actually really funny 
in these films. Uh, he the, he enters the film uh, on a on a horse, and the 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 town. Uh, the Baxter family at this point is harassing him, shooting shooting at the horse's feet, and uh, he uh, at this point jumps off the horse and uh, onto a uh, awning, and just says to the fellow who happens to be in the store, "Just hello." <laughs> <laughs> yes. And it, it's a great introduction uh, to the man who has no name, except he does have names. It turns out the man with no name was a marketing tool. And we refer to the the three movies we're going to talk about with Eastwood often as the uh, the either the Dollars trilogy or the Man with No Name trilogy. But uh, as you said, uh, he has a name in all three movies. They just happen to be different names. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we'll go uh, more into that as we go more into the Dollars trilogy and and that like um, as a marketing scheme, it seems pretty interesting to go. Um, uh, why would you go promote a guy with no name? I mean, uh, <laughs> wouldn't you want a wouldn't you want a person with a readily identifiable name, like say you know Clark Kent or <laughs> or Bruce Wayne or um uh, or James Bond? <laughs> names are names are kind of cool and valuable. So right. why would you think they would like to use that as a way to promote him? Right, a little bit of mystery, I guess. Mm-hmm. Now yeah. they found uh, Clint Eastwood uh, at this point was a complete unknown in the film industry. He was uh, on a hit television show, Rawhide, and so Leone saw an episode of the show and said, "Let let's see what this guy can do." And you know, Clint Eastwood, we've all seen him for all these decades. He came into film uh, in starring roles fully formed. He is as good in A Fistful of Dollars as he would end up being throughout his career. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's pretty uh, uh, cool to just see has his persona um, is very well defined, very well defined. But it does, like you were saying, Brad, it does have that sense of mystery as to like what what is his what is his motives, in what and in what level does he you know think himself like above of the two war the two warring factions. It I do get a sense that he does think he's above them, but then what kind of uh, but then what kind of scheme is he playing? Well, I, I think initially it's it's simple greed. He has come up with a scam. You have these two uh, gangster families that have taken over the town and uh, and terrorized the town, and basically the only thing they have to fear is each other. So he figures out that if he can start uh, knocking off members of one family or the other, making alliances with one family, and then sneak back and make further alliances with the other, that he could get them each to uh, pay him some money for his uh, dirty deeds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he, um, and it's kind of that he see also has his use of, um, he has this almost supernatural ability with a pistol that is uh that is seems to be something that like the both sides hold in like um uh, hold in high regard or high demand at different points of the movie not only starts off with some uh great gunfighting but there's a really interesting moment like um about halfway through where they uh, want to go witness one of the members of the family having a meeting uh, with um, a transfer between some golden arms at the Rio Grande River. And what ends up resulting is that uh, instead of actually providing a transfer, some of the wagons 
open up to reveal a Gatling gun that proceeds to go and mow them down by the score of, uh, uh, of soldiers. And this is a film that's came out uh, several years before films like um, uh, the Peck and Paws, the wild bunch. So that level of pure massacre uh, was, I think, rarely uh, affected in, in films up to that point. Right, and, and that's a key point about it being made in Europe, is the uh, standards for violence were different uh, in European productions. And, uh, you know, we still had in, in uh, 1964, when this uh, film came out in Europe, uh, the United States films were still very much under the production code, but those would uh, fade, fade away just within a few years of this point. Um, yeah, and 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 Eastwood's um, yeah, and 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 Eastwood's like a treatment of like that kind of of that kind of violence. It doesn't lead him to go and like try and uh, fight for justice so much as use that as another bargaining chip to go and uh, um, uh, use for his use for his own advantage. Um, and it's um, a, a case where he's move he also puts himself into like his himself into a dire situation which gets him he's not the completely supernatural because he does end up like getting some getting seriously hurt but i think it straddles the line in a kind of like an interesting way when i was going out and watching it like um uh, there's a point made like by the um by the fairly misguided bartender owner who's letting him sleep uh, in his uh, in his um uh, bar that he doesn't ever sleep um and and part of what and in part of the movie he makes his escape by literally traveling out through a coffin right <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and it ends in kind of a very re- very remarkable like uh, showdown sequence where the way he defeats a series of gunfighters is he actually lets them shoot him but it doesn't knock him down. So, like, could, uh, could, like, could, like, the first, like, real spaghetti Western hero be, you know, part vampire or something? <laughs> <laughs> that would be, that would be nice to think. But, uh, spoiler alert, he does, in fact, have, he has made himself a bulletproof shield that he is wearing, and, uh, and proves to be uh, very effective. He also seems to be feeding off the anger of the, the head villain who uh, is uh, just can't believe what he's seeing of this guy keeps coming back and back. Exactly yeah. right. And I mean, like at that se- at that sequence, though, we do not know until it's revealed that that's that that piece of armor is there. We're watching a guy mm-hmm. take shot after shot after shot after shot. And, and and come back up. It is it's an exploration of like um of westerns which was fairly unknown at the time, I believe, where like you're, it's the shootouts and the confrontations are given like a hint of an like an of an epic scale, of almost like a, a mythic scale. You know, like the the western is kind of is thought up I I guess in some quarters as a um quintessential kind of American myth. But but Maybe like Sergio learned a little more from like the Colossus of Rhodes than than we are to let on because he kind of pushes the the uh, he pushes the um action in a way that almost harkens back to like actual mythy myths like gods and uh, demons and so forth. 
very much so, and this continues throughout the the Leone films, is that it's it, they're almost superhero movies. The way uh, the the both both the chief uh, good guys and villains uh, seem uh, preternaturally gifted in the in the art of gunfighting and able to able to take a beating, which actually uh, Clint takes in uh, all three films. Uh, that, that's yeah. right. Yes, yes. He he goes through. He goes through an awful uh, amount of like physical abuse in uh, in these movies uh, enough so that it just like would almost surprise that Mel Gibson hasn't tried to remake them. <laughs> but that you, you mentioned myth, and that really brings us to one of the other chief uh, aspects that make these movies great and that make them unique, which is uh, the score by the great composer Ennio Morricone. Yes, and. You know, we can talk about scores when we talk about any director and, 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 and their composers. But what we have here is a very special and perhaps unprecedented partnership between director and composer in creating a world. What we see in, in this movie and the subsequent movies simply would not work at the level they do of myth-making, of world-creating, without this amazingly amazing score uh, that is, by the way, different for each movie. He doesn't just uh, repeat motifs throughout. Each each film has has a unique score. There... They they include uh, voice in in a very unconventional way, and they're very in your face. I'm sure it's one of the things that someone like Quentin Tarantino would be paying very close attention to in lessons on how to grab an audience attention. So we even begin with the opening credits, which is uh, this uh, amazing score of, uh, of... kind of a, a men's choir going we can work which eventually switches to we we can win and as you're doing that you see these uh, cartoon silhouettes of of horses and, and cowboys and and the credits uh getting shot up that kind of have the abstraction of of the great uh james bond credit sequences yeah maybe even a little like saul bassian i would say like yes. how, how angular mm-hmm. those guys are yes like the um and all underlined by this like by this we can work we can work kind of thing Morricone's efforts with Leone is can't be overvalued and they point to something which I think is is something that very special that Leone that Leone brings in that like when you go the kind of music often has a chance to go in like really hit people you know it has a chance to go in like um, it really affect people in such a direct manner, in a manner maybe e- that even gets ahead of like their understanding of what's going on. And c- I kind of think that Leone, through his uh, through his career and starting off with Fistful of Dollars, gets to this level that before uh, that's this level in visual terms, 
but it's so also intrinsically a collaboration between him and Morricone. I believe notably like Morricone um, would go and like record a score often and have the score ready or parts of it ready before the actual shooting is happening. Right. This will happen a little later on in, in his career. It'll start with the good, the bad and the ugly and reach its full apex with uh, once upon a time in the West. Uh, at this point, it must have been just an amazing uh, discovery on everyone's part to uh, find the music and the uh, the film working such uh, such wonders together, and so you have you know probably the third leg on that chair is is Eastwood's performance, which uh, hold which also holds all three movies together. Uh, like in, uh, interesting how it ends with like him going off on in the distance as having the main resolution is that he just killed a bunch of people and now has some money. (laughs) Right. Like there is, um, there's no kind of real sense of moral, of like a moral triumph or, or much less lessons learned upon it. It's, um, uh, uh, it almost couldn't have been a more practical transaction, uh, on, um, uh, on, uh, the, on Eastwood's character's part. Um, but, um, in, in a kind of, I mean, in a kind of way though, like it's, it does seem to me that like, because the deeds of those, of the two families and are, are so dark and they go so, and they go so extreme that he just becomes an, he just becomes an equalizer. Like, it's not even a matter of like morality anymore as so much as like he is leveling out the playing field by like leveling out the influence by both people, right. <laughs> you know, by, by both people in this town. Fistful of dollars made such a spark and such an effect that they felt the the need to pick up on this uh, this kind of character and this kind of story really soon. So next the next year in 1965, they um, uh, he released a film called A Few Dollars More. Where uh, uh, East, where Eastwood's character, now called a Manco, is uh, out uh, and on a bounty killer, on the hunt for a a a, a particular person who has escaped with a ten thousand dollar reward on his head, but but unlike a fistful of dollars, now he has a rival for for his pursuit, a um a uh, very dapper dressed. Um, uh, a slightly older gentleman uh, named Colonel Douglas Mortimer, played by Lee Van Cleef, and um, they uh, they decide through the course of the movie to be both rivals, partners, and uh, and all and numerous shades in between as they decide what's the best way to get close to this guy to get him and his gang dead or alive. Now Lee Van Cleef. Uh, this is his first major role. He had been uh, 
kind of a random villain in a number of westerns beforehand, usually without even a speaking role, probably the one uh, best known. Uh, he had a small role in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. And he has a great present that... Uh, to to oppose Eastwood, uh, he's an, an older fellow, and uh, whereas Eastwood is uh, coming from this place of uh, pure strength, Lee Van Cleef seem, brings some experience, some uh, gravitas uh, to the role, and, but he has the same kind of intensity, so that helps. Now, uh, speaking of intensity, the villain of uh for a few dollars more is played by the same actor who was a villain in a fistful of dollars uh Gian Maria Volante who uh is a very uh big star in Italy uh here pretty much mostly known for uh these dollars movies but uh it it starts the pattern where actors will appear in more than one film but in completely different roles uh the other interesting thing about uh, about his role here is he is one of uh, cinema's first uh, or mainstream cinema's first uh, pot users. He is uh, oh, right. constantly uh, uh, smoking smoking on the weed, and uh, it has a the the film doesn't quite understand what that means because uh, when he does take a smoke of that, he ends up uh, in some weird fever dream. Uh, to the extent that uh, pot <laughs> is not often known to uh, <laughs> to provide. <laughs> yeah, there's certain yes, there's certain uh, judgments that um uh, that he makes that are very suspect. I don't know how many what combinations of chemicals he was doing to right. <laughs> to um uh, justify some of the uh, things he does later, especially later on in the movie. Um, like yeah, Volante is uh Volante is a um a really interesting character in that like. He's for one thing, he goes and takes um he goes and starts a theme where it like takes Enrico Morricone's music and literally puts it as terms in the movie because they they're um when he faces off with people and he challenges them to a duel, he does it by like opening out a watch that plays a particular chime. And the and and when the chime is finished, then people can go then people can go and draw. And this happens enough that it becomes a kind of a moti- kind of a motif in the movie, and actually becomes a, a, a valued plot point later on. And it's so much so that, like, once the when you hear the music, you're automatically in tune that this is a big poten- this is a big turning point or a potential or a potential flashpoint of where the story is going. Right, and the, it will also be a precursor to how music ends up being used in in a number of uh, future Leone films, where it's not just the background, but intrudes on the plot itself. The interactions between uh, Mortimer and uh, and the uh, and Lee Eastwood's character named Manco in this one is um, uh, uh, are pretty interesting because they 
they have a really nice sense of uh, one-upsmanship in a very cool sequence uh, uh, in the, at the nighttime of a, of a town um, involving a, a lot of impressive shooting of hats. <laughs> you, you know, this is my favorite scene in the movie, uh, partially because it was the first scene from any of these movies I ever saw. I saw it kind of just flipping around on television, not even having watched the whole movie. Uh, but uh, as, as these guys who aren't sure whether they're going to be uh, friends or rivals uh, tend to do in these movies, they want to see who's the better shot, so they keep uh, shooting each other's hats. And, of course, it's filmed in a way that is just extremely enjoyable. Uh, and uh, just, just, just a lovely scene. Yeah. yeah, and it's um, and it and they um, and over the course of the over the course of the movie, they're they they do a uh, a really nice dynamic in both how they relate to each other and how they relate to, um, uh, Volante's gang, um, uh, like one guy must be the inside guy and one guy must be the outside guy, <laughs> um, uh, and and they and they use this to go play on both sides to go and. Uh, uh, try to put him in a uh, vulnerable in a vulnerable position, and while like Eastwood's character Manco is a natural kind of more of a natural threat, right down to like literally having a rawhide slipcover on his um uh, on his wrist, like the Mortimer character is like just kind of, almost like James Bondy in the amount of gadgetry that he has, <laughs> right? Like the just the bigger guns. <laughs> well, yes, and like and he uh, he has a whole rolled up collection of rifles mm-hmm. and a very particular a very particular handgun with a with an with an extended with an extended stock. He even I believe uses an old school um uh, uh, telescope to go and uh, spy upon what the, uh, things are happening. Now, probably the biggest difference between uh, for a few dollars more and a fistful of dollars is the pacing. A fistful of dollars uh, is a very tightly plotted film that went uh, very quickly from action sequence to action sequence. Here, Leone allows himself a lot more leisure time, a lot of time to just kind of get to see the characters interact with the town and each other in different circumstances. Um, and again, it's it's something that Leone is going to become more and more interested in is creating moods and doing so through uh, a very uh, deliberate pacing. Yes, and he, right, it get, the movie has some more room to not just breathe on a story level, but is giving, like, um, Leone more of a palette to just go and explore, like, the, the kind of things he wants to, like, show on a movie screen. Like, it has the notable opening sequences literally shows the most abstract version of what it means to be a bounty killer as you just see a guy walking off in the distance and you just hear some whistling and he gets shot dead and the credits play over a corpse off right. like from like uh, <laughs> uh from like half a mile away by the way the whistling going on in that opening credits is uh supposedly from from Leone himself is that right i didn't know that okay. <laughs> uh and and um and he, and um Leone goes and gets to, um, like, even expand on, like, the kind of people that he shows in his movies. Like, like um, the main gang, like, is uses these just very, very unique collection of faces and these kind of personalities that are managed to be, like, managed to be fairly distinct, 
while not actually having necessarily a lot to say. Um, and, uh, and like he's doing similar kind of level of distinction with the landscapes. Um, the, the main town, which is part of a cent uh, central focus of a bank robbery is uh, significantly different from like the place where the place where they end up, which is this like, just seems like this just random collection of like white, uh, of white buildings scattered off into the distance. Right. It, it, it's almost like a, a medieval, uh, town in the middle of nowhere and you know i think here you're seeing the results of shooting in in spain instead of uh the united states because you do know you do no matter uh how much they want to admire and emulate the western they there's something very european about the look and feel of all these films and about the international cast of actors who could end up being from any country in europe uh, klaus kinski of uh yes. warner herzog movies fames uh plays a hunchback yeah <laughs> in, in this film of course like all the other european actors he's uh dubbed uh for the american version with an american uh actor's voice but he has this one Wonderful scene where uh, they're getting ready to rob a bank, and so he can't let loose. And uh, Mortimer lights a uh, a match on his hunchback, which causes Kinski <laughs> to uh, have spasms in in ways we've come to love from Kinski. <laughs> yeah, uh, Kinski does um, the uh, as close as you can to not going completely crazy while <laughs> barely, barely, barely holding it together. And yes, you can't. You can uh, very rarely get more distinctive than Klaus Kinski. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, and yeah, the, the, like the areas that the, the area they're at over at the end is also kind of like presented in these kind of mystical terms. Like they have Eastwood come in first and they say, well, we, they, people aren't usually around there for much longer or say, or one of the bandits says something out like to mm -hmm. that, uh, to that effect, you know? Um, uh, and, and the um uh, and and in fact like that also leads to like the when the our the main villain gets broken out of jail like and he come and he actually comes he actually comes back and he hides out in an old wrecked uh, church right and and it gives like this just kind of like a uh, sense of like let religion has been like kind of left behind in this world. It's a kind of uh, maybe purgatory like realm where, where like um, this level of um, uh, Christianity or, or any religion is in very like short supply. And this is hit home when the villain makes a sermon to his gang yes. as if they were parishioners. Right. He lit right. He literally goes up into the pulpit to go and make a sermon about how to properly mm -hmm. go and um, uh, uh, rob, rob a bank. Right. Now, one thing, it's very interesting to add the Mortimer, Mortimer character, Lee Van Cleef, into the mix. It's interesting how this leads to a climax that features not Eastwood as the main protagonist, but Lee Van Cleef. Yes, it's um, uh, yeah, it's um, uh, Eastwood's character uh, from Fistful, like has almost no past whatsoever. I think the closest that happens is he says something like, I knew a woman like like you once, and I wasn't able to do anything about that woman's situation. And he has scarcely more um, of a past here, but Mortimer 
is a is a incredibly capable war, uh, warrior with a with a pass a distinctive pass which intertwines with the um uh, uh Volante's uh, Volante's character and whereas he his past leads him to be on us on a on a very emotionless kind of mission Volante seems to in in a sense possess like almost all of this emotional component he's pretty like torn up in a lot of scenes He's raving in a lot of sequences and he is, um, uh, in fact, some, some scenes actually literally have him like staggering. Mm -hmm. So their conference, their confrontation is almost like, and I don't know if it's tied into like how mechanical Van Cleef's weaponry is. It's just the level of pure precision versus a level of, um, uh, a level of, of emotion. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm and now, of the now of the two, the fistful of dollars and a few dollars more. Do you have one that you would give a few dollars more for, Brad? <laughs> I probably would give the edge to the a fistful of dollars just because it is the originator of the style, and everything is so fresh, so new. Uh, for a few dollars more is wonderful. I I, I love it to death. Uh, it is somewhat the next. Uh, the next step uh, of of the first film. It's basically saying, okay, you you got you you got the you 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 got the first one. Now we're gonna up the ante a bit. But when it comes to upping the ante, it could be upped quite a bit more. It 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 definitely can, and has and those elements that have that that showed up already evident in in fistful of dollars and got expanded in a few dollars more um got got polished ex polished and set to like an incredibly high level maybe even an apex in his uh in Leone's next film The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, released in 1966. Uh, here, like, um, uh, features uh, three individuals that are all after a uh, goal of some of some of some gold that was stored in from a um, missing um, uh, from a missing like a caravan, uh, and the three pursuers all match the three adjectives out in the title. Like the good is represented by Eastwood's character, a um, uh, a bounty hunter uh, once again. Uh, the bad is represented by um, uh, Lee Van Cleef as a character who's been who also does not have a proper name but is referred to as Angel Eyes throughout the um, uh, uh, story. And we should clarify is not the same character from a few dollars more. That's right. He's a. Uh, that's right. He uh, whereas whereas Mortimer is Mortimer has a mission and is, is sympathetic. Uh, Lee Van Cleef is just uh, spectacular at portraying a, a a a a guy who, while actually he does have a code of always following the job through, mm -hmm. no matter uh, uh, no matter like um, 
what how that conflicts with his pre, with his previous loyalties, but he always sees the job through. But his malevolence just um uh, uh just shines through in in these sequences and the and uh, which he gets the intro in this uh, in this movie in a in a sequence that can almost hearken to the um uh in terms of tension to the um scene from Inglorious Bastards where I, where uh, Colonel Landa interrogates a mm. uh, a farmer just in terms of it's just about Lee Van Cleef having a meal and, and having a nice conversation. And yet it gets you completely on edge. So just through like, through his, through his performance and through like Leone's Leone's direction. Now we're also the third part of this very, very uh, unique triangle is the ugly, ugly, a, a, a amazingly, um, uh, Elemental kind of re, uh, performance by um, Eli Wallach as a Tuco, a a horrible, endless reprobate, uh, bank robber, horse thief, and uh, and uh, you. If there's a if there's a low rent crime, you name it, he'll he'll partake in it. Who um who finds himself like who finds himself caught, and that's where he encounters uh, Eastwood's uh, uh, Eastwood's good character. To which they start up a a very unique kind of relationship where he turns Tuco in, and Tuco go and then uh, manages to shoot the noose out from under him as he's about to be hanged from <laughs> one town uh, from 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 town to town to town. <laughs> so let me just start out by saying, wow, this one. <laughs> it is my favorite western. It's it's one of my favorite films of all time. There, there is something about this. I mean, I mean, most people listening, I assume, have have seen this this film. Uh, it, it has, even though it's also very deliberately paced, it has this insane energy to it that has just rarely been matched. Um, everything is more extreme than it has been. Uh, everything about Morricone's music, everything about Leone's style, and and I'll use an ex- as an example uh, the very opening shot of the film, which is you see a standard Western vista. So far, nothing too surprising about that. But then, it, it, then in deep close up, a face rises to fill the entire screen. It's not even a main character. It's a thug. It's a scarred, ugly villain. And and yet the first thing we see is his face in full close-up. And this is a strategy that Leone will use throughout his career of contrasting long shots of Western vistas with close-ups of faces. They appeared in the earlier films too, but here those close-ups are so pronounced that they they are unforgettable. You get even closer. You had mentioned in the intro how you know people are sweaty, people are dirty, and and Leone enjoys every crevice of these amazing faces yeah and 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 every and every like a crevice of the environments that they uh find themselves in too the um uh like the uh these like these wind wind these windswept valleys and these um uh and these small and the uh like the 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 dilapidated streets of these of these towns 
And like what he is a study, like you were saying, he's a study of contrasts. How do you get from like something so super, such a super close view and then out to such and out to such a distance? And he expands the range of what it, it is to what it is to experience these uh, experiences story, you know, like uh, some on like the most intimate level, but then also on the most grand level, something that like is on the most personal, but then also on the most on a, on a most universal and to the when and he his collaboration with Eric Mor- Morricone reaches its reaches an incredible high point where it puts this western to the level of not movies but opera like like these the every the emotions the um the actions the um, they're all given like just the most heightened scope the most heightened drama and it becomes like life or death in almost every inhale or exhalation in in the as the movie goes on for sure you have uh the repetition of the main theme the very very famous main theme of of the film over the credits uh that comes back to echo uh each of the characters actions then you have another example of music being used within the film to affect um uh, uh Clint, the Clint Eastwood and Eli Wallach are captured by uh the Union army they have uh, mistaken uh, mistakenly thought they were uh, in the company of confederates uh during uh, world war 2 i'm sorry during the civil war as uh and and thought that they they were seeing people in uh gray uniforms but that was just the dust they're in blue, blue uniforms and they are captured and unfortunately for them find themselves uh that one of the union uh officers is uh is angel eyes himself so the he goes on uh cuz he needs uh, information about the treasure from uh from uh, Eli Wallach's character to uh, have a torture session with him. Meanwhile, uh, in this uh, Union prison, uh, a uh, small band of uh, uh, instrumentalists are uh, playing this somber music that uh, as, that that is that that keeps the the inmates from hearing all the uh, the beating that's happening and the beating that we can only assume uh, it happens on a pretty regular basis. So we cut from uh, uh, Tuco uh, receiving a, a lot of damage to uh, these uh, uh, these these players mournfully uh, playing this tune. Yeah, it's right. This um. Right, that song. Yeah, that, that song thing is very fascinating. They're out and singing, and yet it's incredibly apparent as we're watching that <laughs> that they know somebody's being tortured in the next room. So it kind of like, leads me to a, a question: Just why are they? Why are they singing? Why are they bothering to sing at that point? I mean, if it's a uh, if if they kind of know what's going on. Well, it, it it might be because the actual uh, chief of the uh, of the camp, who is uh, dying from gangrene, uh, is uh, still trying to maintain somewhat of a illusion that uh, that this is a uh, a decent place, a decent prison, and uh, it is not. And it may be that the many of the uh, officers themselves 
are trying to maintain that illusion as well. But I think this is another area where uh, this movie starts to pursue issues that are uh, a little deeper than previous movies uh, have, which is the idea of warfare. You know, the Civil War... Uh, for about um, a third of the film takes uh, front and center stage as we see our characters uh, in the midst of these battles. And, you know, we, we start to have to ask ourselves, well, yes, we're having a great time with these characters, but, you know, what are the implications of the war all around them? Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, it leads me a really curiously to like, look at that situation in the camp. I mean, it's like for it's to the benefit of that gangrene ridden <coughs> that gangrene ridden um uh head of the camp to go and have this idea that things are going okay and that this singing is meant to kind of boost morale or at least be some sort of building exercise for the people in the camp and and I don't know I guess I could take it to mean that that the um, it's a way of saying that societal things like songs and patriotic anthems and what have you are just kind of a way of maybe papering over the real horrific stuff that's going on behind the scenes. And maybe it's like a kind of a willful desire of people to go and try to transcend it or, or bypass it because, right. mm-hmm. because like, just like how like the, the, uh, the chiming becomes a kind of motif of part of the soundtrack in a few dollars more. Like, I believe later you, there's a moment where, where, where Eastwood's character meets up with a, a dying soldier and, and he gives the soldier a, a couple of breaths off of his cheroot, which uh, is, I guess what enough to constitute him as the good of this particular, <laughs> uh, this particular um, um, uh, trio. But the music of Marconi's, is exactly I think it's exactly the same that was playing uh, that the people were actively singing hmm. in the camp. Also in terms of Marconi, though, like it's and not, not even on Marconi. I actually want to follow through on what you're saying on the idea of the war and what the what its effects are. It's it's a um, there. It's a really ties into the situation with the um, uh, Civil War conflict that uh, that uh, Tuco and uh, Eastwood's Blondie find themselves in to like have a bridge that has been a source of constant conflict between the um, uh, rebels and the Union Army. And um, there is a wounded um, leader on the Union side who says that, like, that the best that all these people have been sacrificed and just keep fighting over this meaningless bridge. And if and maybe the most humanitarian thing that would happen would be for this bridge to be blown up. 
you know, and and the there's a there is a series of battles we do get to see of of the soldiers as they try to as one side and the other try to take that bridge, and and the movie really makes you aware of the carnage that is uh, that is involved, but also the pomp and circumstance that is involved in rousing people to go and uh, keep going on this conflict. Right, because the whole point of the bridge is there is no point to the bridge. It is not a uh, it is not really helping either side of the conflict, and it, all it's doing is prolonging the conflict, which I think says something about uh, you know some similar things to what we may have seen in apocalypse now about just the futility of war and and how uh banal uh some of it is that people are dying to protect a bridge which uh in the long run means nothing Mm -hmm. yes um yeah the the idea on like like where where's the kind of meaning that people give upon a uh, something that very well may mean nothing it ties into something that i was like really picked up on when i was like looking at the good and the bad and the ugly for for this podcast is that it is it is a movie that is full of a lot of things like um obviously a lot of a lot of action um um uh, uh, a lot of um uh, great visuals a lot of rousing music a lot of uh, a lot of story and in Tuco's case uh, a hell of a lot of anything this guy can get his hands on <laughs> and everything that comes out of his mouth is a, a virtual torrent of, <laughs> of, uh, of, 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 uh, of golden hilarity and, and, and how like uh, repulsive and crude he could be. <laughs> but in, in the midst of all that, I think what like makes what kind of cuts against the movie that I th- so really well is that for a movie which has so many things, it's also about lack of lack. It shows the kind of value you get out of like what you value you could get or how much more you can get out of just reducing things. Like and Enrico Morricone's theme of the three of of each three each of the three uh, or three main characters is it is one of the most memorable themes in film history. But it's also so so simple. Mm-hmm. Do 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 do. That's maybe four or five distinct notes, and that's it. And yet, when those notes make their appearance, you're just you're just uh, you feel it with you you feel the effect almost through the force of a full orchestra's uh, rendition of a of a closing of a symphony. But who would imagine that that simple melody can utilize a coyote howl? Right, yeah. <laughs> right, and uh, right. That's exactly right. He's. He uses the mel- the melody can be a structure, but then it's what constitutes the melody and the and the um, the whistle of um, uh, the whistle on Eastwood's side of it, the howl on Tuco's side, and the and uh, the dark like guitar sound of um, uh, of Angel Eye sound manages to take a motif that is that feels rock solid, but but points it in three totally different three totally different directions. This sense of like lack is really. Uh, prevalent in in a, in a lot of cases in this film the point on the bridge is going out to nowhere but then also so much of this movie could almost pass for maybe the first post-apocalyptic western because so much of it is set in like deserted areas and in in one particular uh in one particular case it's the town that has been continually being shelled by by a military artillery. So it's 
this amazing scope of desolation with half destroyed buildings and and occasional random explosions and and wafts of smoke just floating in and floating in and out of the area and and what's not there though is society law mm-hmm. and uh, any kind of sense of civil any kind of sense of a civilization which is like long passed by i mean and by virtue of showing that kind of things that are missing it lets you fit in an all i look at it in all sorts of interesting ways not just to go and like look at this kind of this is a case this is the western like moved like two or three steps beyond what it was in the american style where it was a wilderness that had this American attitude of how will America, how will a person be able to define themselves here? Here's a case of like, you're in a void with no gravity and no standing. And, and if you're not one of these like super warrior, uh, like almost mythic figures, how would you even have a chance to survive in this kind of environment? Right. And, and you see the answer is barely as <laughs> yes. uh, people who are not, our main characters are, are, are always, you know, the casting again is of these very strange faces and you, you, you kind of realize what, you know, they're presented very much as misfits as, as folks who are there oftentimes to take abuse. Bill, Bill Carson, the person who ends up like having a, a, a knowledge of the knowledge of the gold is missing an eye. One of the informers for Angel Eyes is missing the lower half of his body, mm-hmm. and and the actual name of the um, grave where the loot is located. What is the name on that? As Tuco so aptly put it, there's no name on it. <laughs> <laughs> like this sense of like things that are missing mm-hmm. that should be there are like is just kind of flowing in a movie that already has so much. Right, right. And but on, you were saying on Tuco then. Right, Tuco. right. And, and and again, you talk about so much and that's what what you have in Eli Wallach is a character who is so much about um so much of pure id. He is exactly whatever he wants at the time, and he will say it as loudly and as colorfully as possible. And and Eli Wallach's performance it reaches a a, a kind of comic brilliance here. And and I was thinking about why or why do we like this uh, character, the ugly, who is uh, really basically doing his terrible things as anybody else is that he seems a little more human because he's less polished. He's less, uh, he's less slick than, uh, mm-hmm. than, than the other characters, but also he is completely, uh, unwilling to give up under any circumstances. He finds himself in, in, you know, hanging from a rope more than once in in this uh, film, and he takes that opportunity to scream and yell some more, and to yes. figure out what he what he'll do when he gets out of this situation, because there is absolutely no giving up in this character. He is indomitable. Yeah, it, it's like there's a statement that uh, comes up in the movie where it says there's two kinds of people in the world: those with guns and those with their heads in the noose. Mm-hmm. And I think Tuco, I mean, I think what makes Tuco um, such a fascinating and a character I find just so interesting and to relate to and 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 and, uh, and experience is because he almost is both. At times, he is the guy with the gun. 
at times he is the person with his um head in the noose like like you were saying that like he's he's most human because you know, he's most human because he has these um uh, foibles foibles yeah. that uh, fo- uh, right and i think kind of what makes him ugly is the is that is that he's human he has these unlike unlike angel eyes and blondie who like they understand to they understand that they have what they what to get what they want there's no very little extraneous things they or or extra things they can can do to avoid their fate you know they will go and they will go and um uh they will take an opportunity when the opportunity presents itself but if the opportunity does not they will just stoically go on ahead whereas tuco is riven by conflicts by by what he needs by what uh by wondering what he need what he needs to do and and uh and his like feel and his feelings overtake his like overtake his abilities and his judgment over and over and over again like he's um like one of my favorite sequences that i find particularly funny of his is when he um he um uh, see, sees that a grave that he's uncovering to try and get gold is uncovered and realized there is actually was a dead body inside and to which he very quickly gives the sign of the cross right. because he has this um uh, has had this religious background but only but it flashes across his face for just a moment as he just angrily realizes he's been deceived <laughs> the thinking there is some gold so the greed man just to come in right after the religious stuff comes in right and, and, and even Tuco's opening scene in the film really uh, personifies this which is it's basically over the over the credits uh, these uh, villains uh, henchmen from the opening scene go into the building to shoot it up. We don't see what happens in the building. The camera's placed outside and we see Tuco smash out the window, uh, holding a half eaten chicken leg. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And and then we find out that in those few seconds they were in there, Tuco had managed to shoot them all. So he is amazingly skilled, but also just amazingly ornery and, uh, and, and and unkempt but yes yes and, and mm-hmm. right i mean his i mean just look at his feelings of like the when he gets his head in a noose different it's like a, almost a different take each time like you know like when he goes and has this quote-unquote heart-to-heart like talk with blondie about how he should get a little more money and then he's um uh and then he says uh uh you know you know if you don't think uh if if you don't go and kill me and you don't expect me to go and uh, chase you down, you won't know what's about to And he's laughing and does a, a shot cut to him and his newest and he's rolling his eyes like, mm-hmm. oh, no, not again. It's the <laughs> it is the I hate Mondays of the of the Western uh, bounty hunter <laughs> scene. Right now, now, while we're talking about what makes Tuco the ugly, I think it's kind of interesting how the words the good, the bad, and the ugly don't really apply in their usual sense. Because as we've discussed as uh, tropes of spaghetti westerns, there, there, there's much the, the good ain't all that good. Clint Eastwood uh, is is pretty is no more uh, out for justice uh, than he is in his earlier films. He's still working off greed uh, and uh, and doing 
what you know would in a, a more traditional western be frowned upon but of course it's made more palatable by just how bad the bad is personified by Lee Van Cleef mm-hmm. and 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 again is the ugly isn't necessarily what one's look one looks like but one's just naked humanness right 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 it's it's these three are like seems to be kind of like ultra repre- ultra representative of how quote unquote good someone can really be in this world, how the level of bad someone could be, and 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 the ugly the level of quote unquote ugly human that you can be in this world. Because if if you're not one of these groups, you are fodder. You can be extinguished at a you can be extinguished at a moment's notice, like um uh. Uh, and 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 maybe it's the that kind of like connection to this um to humanity, which uh, in Tuco's case, he is the only one of the the three which actually has a past. You actually see right. that he he has a background of uh, where his brother, notably, is a member of is a member of the clergy, <laughs> and so which also gives him the different kind of particular spiritual connection. So the uh, the last half of the film. Uh, intensifies the treasure hunt and uh, we have this little game played because uh, Tuco knows where uh, knows the where the cemetery is that the treasure is hidden but only Eastwood knows the name of the gravestone so as we move our way towards the uh, the cemetery again this is a this is a three-hour film so so you know, it has this epic and very deliberative feel. But once we get to the cemetery, something incredible happens. Uh, and it's, again, something very much uh, score-related. We see uh, Tuco in this moment of pure ecstasy, joy, and uh, running through the, the cemetery, realizing that he has is close to the treasure. He, he doesn't know exactly where it is, but he know, knows it's close. And then, and, and this is filmed uh, in a way that you see him running, the, the gravestones are blurry behind him, and the score reaches an amazing apex. That's yes, that's so true. He's as he's like as he's running like like Leone frames it just beautifully as it's in that he's like suspended in the middle of the frame and the graves and the different markers are moving around past him. Then they they cease to even become almost markers. They become versions of like color and light and and it it turns into this whole it brings it into a whole kind of like world of like light and dark of stripe and pattern which Tuco finds himself suspended in in that level of ecstasy as you described that enthusiasm that desperation and it keeps him so suspended in the middle so we can look at it all it's actually something that I would go and like term actually is it's pure cinema it in that moment it just goes and transcends the idea of what we're seeing is like 
trying to depict something of quote unquote really happening. It's using the tools of what we're looking at in film to go and like give us an exact perfect sense of what that character is feeling, what that character is thinking, and what it would be like to be in that particular kind of search with that feeling of like desperation and greed and want. Right. And you had mentioned before about how Morricone uh, would eventually start to record uh, or, or, or write his score prior to shooting, and then the film would be shot to the score and this is the first sequence in Leone where that actually happens and so the score drives everything we see and continues to do so in the final shootout which uh which happens in the very next scene so we end up uh still in this graveyard angel eyes has now joined the fray he materializes mm-hmm. in shovel form yes <laughs> like it's it's at at that that at that moment, like it's just meant to be a confrontation for all three. And, and if you give it like a, a huge amount of thought, the idea that like he had walked, ran, rode in and, and caught them by surprise would, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But in the movies, in the, uh, in that part of the movie, it feels completely right because when they find the treasure, they all need to be there and they all need to have a reckoning. Right, and this happens around uh, a a a stone circle that appears in three different Leone movies as the uh, as the place for a shootout, and so you have what in a standard movie uh, might happen very quickly. Here, seem is drawn out for uh, five to ten minutes uh, with no dialogue. We have the three characters in different places on the circle, and we are going back and forth to close-ups of their faces, the intensity of the moment. They are all ready to uh, draw in this uh, in this situation, and then. And as this is happening, the score is again taking it up a notch in uh, what's my favorite part of the score, uh, which is uh, called Il Trillo, and takes some of the themes from the graveyard uh, theme and uh, utilizes this very powerful trumpet to... uh, to make these scenes where you're going from eye to eye to eye to be remarkably intense. While this is going on, like the like Leone is just doing a master class of how to just alternate image upon image, perspective change upon perspective change, editing and pacing to just drive intensity and attention to a an absolutely feverish level uh, that few movies have been able to equal, not just on close ups of like not the faces. It don't even it don't even resolve to faces after a while, right? It revolves to their eyes, right? As, and just 
their eyes taking up the entirety of the widescreen, but then cut in of positions where like where one character is on the far left, another character is in the mi- in the mi- on the far right, but in the middle distance, and one is in the in the background distance in the center. Then then alternating to the close up of one of their hands as they slowly reach for their pistol. Cuts to the eyes of uh, of one of the third staring left and right, and it's it is changing. It is changing perspective by making the by getting out and like tightening this circle of conflict, like which is also notable for its complete three way nature. That first time you see that, you do not know who's going to shoot who, who's going to also do the second shot, who's going to survive, and who and who will not. One one part though of that ending sequence that is um. Uh, that might be a little under noted is that like while like the movie is totally working at this like incredibly elemental emotional and iconic angle <laughs> it's also kind of working on a kind of like as a caper or or a scheme and an intellectual kind of level uh, at least in the at least in the sense that Bl- uh, that Eastwood's blondie character is actually also um he's successful not because or just because he's an excellent um, gunslinger, but because he's incredibly crafty as well. He knows exactly when to team up with Angel Eyes and Tuco at different sections, and when to use one the leverage for one against the other. And and it leads to a really nice detail at the ending sequence, when Tuco goes and says, at the grave, it's unk-unk, there's no name on it. Eastwood says... There's no name on that stone I wrote to say whose grave it was. <laughs> Thereby, like, kind of ensuring that even though, even in, even if he had lost the gunfight, no one would have ever found that money. <laughs> right. He he is not a character bound by ethics. But, uh, sure. But, sure. But, uh, is, Good is call, that, right? right? Definitely not. <laughs> right. Um, uh, uh, yes, which... Which is uh, one of the interesting things that these that that these spaghetti westerns have done is explore the discrepancy between the kind of ethics and morals that people have in um, or showed in American westerns and the kind of ones shown in the worlds that and and I do think it's a kind of a special world that Sergio Leone manages to create through his films for sure and his um and but uh, Eastwood's ethics don't even lack there because he also manages to. He also manages to empty out Tuco's gun, which means in that three-way, that three-way confrontation, Eastwood only needs to care about what one of the people is doing. <laughs> like the, like when it's originally presented, it's like this ultimate example of like the prisoner's dilemma: who gets to shoot first, and how do you make sure that you're the? If you win, you probably need to have to be the second person shooting, and you kill the person who fired from the first guy to the third guy, right? If you're, if in other words, or let's let oh heck, I'll, let's do this mathematically. If you're if you're person number one, the ideal thing is that you see number two shoot number three, so you can shoot number two. Right, <laughs> right. Um, but Eastwood doesn't have to do even these complicated mathematics. He has made it. He not only is a great at uh, drawing his gun, but he is great to put himself in a position where drawing the gun will give the most use for him. And this kind of thing makes this movie so good for repeated viewings because there's so much back and forth 
over who has the upper hand. And it's so often based on uh, on intelligence, on decisions that characters make, that uh, that it's just a pleasure to to watch these uh, machinations keep happening. Right, right. Like they're right. These are three uh, three people who are in their own particular way are very capable, but and and at different points in the story they can like dis- they can disappear like in without a, like in Bonner Trace when Eastwood finds his head in the noose at one point and um and make a, make a sudden reappearance like when Angel Eyes shows up near uh, near the end right they are um mm-hmm. and yes yeah, at different right at different points in the movie it's i mean talk about like um uh lack it's like um <laughs> kind of reminds me of this old saying about like how uh, three people can keep a secret if two of them are dead. <laughs> um, in this case, it's like three three people can go get this gold, but they have the two pieces of information they must share. But they must share between them <laughs> to um, uh, uh, for for them to uh, for them to reach this um, uh, reach this particular destination. And um, and yeah, it it does reward on just like the way that how these three people find themselves in these like p- uh, positions and uh, how their fortunes go and change. And then, and it, it's kind of epitomized by, it's kind of epitomized by just like, like the very interesting kind of mission that like Tuco and Blondie find themselves in a way of getting money by turning themselves in by have by having one of them get turned in, you know, it's a very kind of uh, unique kind of dynamic that's, that I'm not sure that Westerns have even tried to explore before. Right. It's, it's a lot of fun. And it's always, of course, Tuco who has to be the one to get uh, turned in so that uh, right as he's under the noose being ready to be hanged, uh, Eastwood can uh, shoot the rope out and, and allow Tuco to escape. Thereby, they uh, both get the reward money uh that 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 uh, Tuco's wanted for, and uh, double crosses ensue. Um, but yeah. uh, uh, but 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 it but it, it absolutely leads to a great dynamic between them because Tuco basically it's like, well, why should I always be the one? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, and and it leads to a really uh, interesting final sequence where. Where like they re they have had this ritual that was part of their relationship for all this time, and uh, and uh, Eastwood's Blondie decides, well, it's time for one more reenactment. Now that they but now that they found the gold, where he basically like has Tuco standing on a cross, uh, which is interesting considering he's the one showing the uh, ca- uh, showing the Christian heritage mm-hmm. in the film, Stan- standing on a cross on part of a grave. Part of a grave, uh, it's head in a noose, and where the last thing he sees, and the last thing he could possibly see, is this pile of more money than he's ever seen in his possibly way too soon to be extinguished life. <laughs> and um, and he's just like it's a situation of fortune and misfortune, just all wrapped up so tightly, and um, uh, and in that way, like. Eastwood's uh, what Eastwood does to him is a I mean, wow, that's an interesting take of what it means to be good. Right. Because he gives him half the money, right? He gives him half the money. And uh, (laughs) and, you know, I guess the word good could could apply. But it's uh, he's also kind of enjoying torturing the guy. (laughs) 
It's um, uh, it, yeah, it's a situation where he feels that Tuco Tuco is the person who needs to be. He needs to be in that noose. They say there's two men, in, those two kind of men in the world, and Tuco may have half of the, half of the gold, but he needs to be that certain kind of guy. Yet you love Tuco because he's still gonna scream, yell, and fight about it. That's right. He's not. He does not accept that uh, calculation at all. Exactly. Yes. He's right. He's left like he's left uh, swearing out in the circle where his swear his last his last word very possibly was a swear word, but eventually turns into the theme once they, like as as Morricone's uh, version of the motif for him just blares out on the soundtrack. Right. Once and, again, transferring mm-hmm. the idea like like it's almost like the characters literally screaming out the soundtrack himself out of his mouth, you know. An, another advancement uh, uh, or original use of music and film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. It, right. I mean, ultimately, like I'm, a, I am a, a gigantic, gigantic fan of this uh, of this film because of that variability. Like, like what you, what we were saying earlier on the idea of like pure cinema, the way like movies can go and express things and put, give us into a world and environment. Oh, like just done through like just done through like the kind of images and sounds we see that doesn't have to really, like be fit like the real world, but can be but can feel complete feel and and have a, a level of truth and validity all its own. And this is something that that the good and the bad and the ugly is just I think just does masterfully. It kind of does things to like to to put us in this world using like losing like every inch of the frame every particular kind of scope from intimate to distant, every kind of like, um, uh, like every, every kind of, um, uh, sensation from very, from triumphant highs to like dark, to to dark lows. And, and then to just like literally get literally like start to go in, like by reducing things, let making things like levels of sets of three and levels of desolation and emptiness. And, the the kind of things where people are people being present, people being missing, just like just leads to this just like almost like a brand spanking myth that's been delivered <laughs> um, uh, to us through a cinema screen. Something that like even like top films like The Searchers, I don't really think have uh, been able to do. Well, the classic western, uh, you know felt the need to stay in the traditional West, certainly not the historical West. We know that uh, what actually happened in the West bore no resemblance to what happens in Westerns, but uh, they they, they are married to the Western myth. And what Leone does is say that uh, we do not have to follow the rules, stay in the environment, or in any way... uh, stick to that myth we could use that myth as a way to create literally our own universe yes but what's so interesting is that in the good the bad and the ugly leone takes that concept to the most extreme point it possibly could be taken or if i've ever seen it uh be, be taken and so he does he can't go further so what he does next is take us back to the american myth but informed by the style he's been developing all along uh yes and 
And it is also done by making it like even more explicable that what he is doing is, is working on the level of myths and like these kind of elemental stories. Because mm-hmm. what does he even call? He calls his next movie the st- style of a fairy tale. Once Upon a Time in the West, out in, um, 19, uh, made in 1968. I mean, it's the uh, story of also three different characters um, and their inter- in their interaction, but the dynamic is tied in uh, to um, uh, the world of both uh, Leone's and our own in, a, in, in a kind of evolving and maybe even possibly maturing kind of way. Um, uh, the three main characters involved here is Charles Bronson as a unnamed person who is dubbed harmonica through his constant use of the um, instrument and with occasional forays into xylophone, maybe in some deleted (laughs) scenes, I don't know. But um, uh, another is is Jason Robards playing a roguish, um, uh, talkative, uh, but, uh, but, but unlike Tuco, quite like um, refi- or a relatively refined bandit named Cheyenne, mm-hmm. and in a epic inspired move, a horrible villainous scumbag reprobate character with no morals and just this proclivity towards evil, played by Henry Fonda, is named Frank. <laughs> um uh they're uh they all coalesce around an area of a uh an area around a town called um Flagstaff um and area and a nearby area named Sweetwater is is held by a held by a farmer and his family and and he is um uh has an encounter with Frank <laughs> that um uh, that is supposed to get the family out of that area for for some nefarious purpose, but what they do not know is that fr- is that this farmer has married um, a woman uh, from New Orleans named Jill, played by Claudia Cardinal, who arrives uh, who arrives in town uh, shortly thereafterwards, and now she has loans on the property, and the fates of all four of these people uh, combine in on that property and what it means to the surrounding area, which is a very actually very much tied in. To the story of the Old West, and even possibly a little bit of Chinatown too. Right, right. There, there, there are two things happening simultaneously here, which is one is Leone is pushing his stylistic touches uh, even further towards the abstract, and two, he is now taking dealing with a story that he's taking more seriously because he wants to connect the story of uh, particularly Jill and the building of uh, Flagstaff to represent kind of the civil the civilizing of the West. And uh, this is, you know, as you mentioned, Henry Fonda being in this film. Uh, finally, uh, Leone has a real budget to work with. He's been working, you know, with American studios all along, but here now he has a chance to shoot in America. So you have scenes filmed in Monument Valley and uh, and reminiscent of, of all the old uh, westerns that uh, Leone loves. Mm, Monument, Monument Valley, right? So he, uh, so yeah, Leone does may have a fondness for Ford 
for Ford Films. Right. But uh, now talking about the abstraction, though, uh, I want to talk about the opening scene of the film, which features none of the people that you just mentioned, but instead uh, three uh, rather scurvy villains, uh, two of which are, are played by Jack Elam and Woody Strode. I'm a, I don't know the actor who plays the third, but we see them during the credits for uh, quite some time just getting ready for something. And there are some uh, very uh, hard and tough-looking lo- folks, and uh, you see one of them... Uh, dealing with a fly that is uh, buzzing around his gun. Another one... He's uh, able to actually put the fly in his, in his gun barrel. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Another one has uh, water dripping on his on his head, so he puts his cowboy hat and is just is happy to let the water drip. And and, and this g- goes on for, for quite some time, building suspense. Uh, they're at this train station wait, waiting for the train to come in, and we don't know what they're waiting for, but they're waiting for something. They definitely look like they're up to up to no good and uh finally the train does come in out out comes charles bronson and there's an immediate shootout and the three characters we've just spent uh the first uh seven or eight minutes with are are now no more for the film and and there's a a fun uh urban legend uh surrounding those characters which is that Leone initially wanted them to be played by Clint Eastwood, Eli Wallach and Lee Van Cleef. <laughs> <laughs> this That's... obviously did not uh, go it did not happen. <laughs> well, wow, I guess yeah, he I guess he wanted some kind of maybe palate cleanser on mm-hmm. on on this sequence like um that's 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 really interesting. Like that's the there, I think something like those have happened in occasion on movies. But, but like I wonder how many other sequences we that there's been where like a director has literally said, "All right, all right, you know, you know that stuff that I'm like, you know, famous for." Like, uh, all right, this is not that movie. <laughs> like I think the closest that comes to mind for me is um, uh, David Fincher in Alien uh, Alien Three, which uh, uh, which uh, whether. Whether you like like what he did or don't like what he did, the idea of saying, "Oh, hey, remember the Newt and and Hicks, these beloved characters who survived at the end of Alien Two? Well, now they're dead. What do you think about <laughs> that? Huh? <laughs> like he's a making right. he is making a sort of statement, and I, maybe Leone's trying to do the same yes. here. I, I would suggest this one worked far better than, yeah. than the Alien Three example. Well, that and <laughs> speaking in terms of speaking like far better, my God. That sequence, that first 10 minutes, is another just example of cinema at its purest. Mm -hmm. It's like, I mean, it compares, it is a like, it is the same kind of effect that I think people will have if they're Star Wars fans of the very first moment of um, A New Hope, which just like is, uh, to me, it still thrills me to this day whenever you see this sequence of of the ship just flying and then the endless crossing of the star destroyer in pursuit i mean when you see that image you just get this whole sense of how how um desperate the rebellion is and how powerful and all-encompassing the empire is but you're able to do that without knowing about jedi or or uh, or the uh, rebellion's politics or droids or any of the characters or midichlorians or anything like that you get what's going on just out of that shot but right. the shot in once upon a time in the west is 
That's done over what seven, five minutes, seven whole minutes with with barely any dialogue. Right, and no music. It, it's it's all sound effects. So every every uh, step on the wood, every gust of the wind is exaggerated and, and, and used to build the suspenses. We're all waiting to see what happens. And what a category, what a categorically interesting like um, treatment that was for a, for a um, uh, for a film when which is still had the music score done by Ennio Morricone, like to literally have the restraint. Of, of to hold it back and literally have these moments right. where it's all natural sounds. Now, Morricone will not hold back for long because, as we'll talk about as we get further into the film, each of these characters has a musical motif as well. But, um, you know, you talked about what can be conveyed without words just through an image. Uh, brings us to kind of the second big set piece and the use of, of Henry Fonda in this film. Um, yes. There is a, we, we see a, a good all-American family of a, of, of a, a father and, and, and his two sons, uh, two and, sons a and, and the, yes. And uh, working about the farm. And unfortunately for them, they, they run into this uh, group of uh, gunslingers and uh, are dispatched pretty quickly, except for the little boy. And uh, you see a gun uh, pointed at him and uh, the camera does a uh, turnaround so that the, for the first time you see the face of uh of the the gunslinger who is Henry Fonda. Now, um, those the some 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 folks who are younger or who are not that into uh, older films may may not realize how powerful a moment this would have been. And even I don't think it was as effective to us seeing it in retrospect as it would have been to to somebody seeing this back in 1968. Henry Fonda was known for playing the most noble, all-American, decent men in film. From Abraham Lincoln to uh, 12 Angry Men uh, to every everywhere in, in between. Wyatt he Earp. Was, Wyatt Earp. Um, even when the, in Fort Apache, the film where, again, uh, John Wayne ends up playing the heavy, it's Henry Fonda who's uh, playing the just character. Yeah, Tom Jode uh, in Graves of Wrath. Tom Jode, yes. So, so, so he, he brings with him this cinematic baggage that it, it works in, in somewhat of a even more intense way that uh, Jimmy Stewart's uh, persona worked for Vertigo, which is to, to take this actor known as a certain kind of actor and absolutely uh, destroy the image because what uh, Frank Henry Fonda proceeds to do then is to shoot down a child in cold blood, which uh, talk about everything being up for grabs. Right, right. Now, now, now we start now. And again, that this has been done by Henry Fonda is pretty mind blowing. Uh, when he was interviewed, Fonda said that he initially thought he'd uh, wear a fake beard and put on uh, uh, brown uh, contact lenses and change his look to make himself look sinister. But uh, Leone wanted him to look pretty much as his image, so it would be even more shocking to see how evil he is. Well, it's it's a kind of miraculous to just uh, to just be able to watch that sequence in that uh, Fonda was had these bright blue eyes 
and under like Leone's direction, that presentation, they could not be more ice cold. Yes. And mm-hmm. just like so devoid of any sense of warmth, you know, from a person who would like uh, who would like make like a, a Tom Hanks look like a member of the Sex Pistols <laughs> to have him play this like not just a villain, but maybe possibly Le- Leone's biggest villain in terms of like the most malevolent, sure. the most vicious, the most sadistic. Um, uh, like say what you will about say Angel- Van Cleef's Angel Eyes. He he would kill everyone in his way, but he did not. You never got the sense that he got a, a specific, specific like lick lipping sense of enjoyment the way that Frank seems to mm-hmm. from all the horrible things that he that he ends up doing. Um, and also notable on that sequence is that like while the first sequence it's is is all it does like a master class in what like horror maybe horror directors should be able to watch in terms of how you can get ring tension out of the creaking of a windmill the sl- the steady drop of water like the creaking of the boards of a train station all these elements are used but the second one almost ups the game because it does tension out of just natural things like rustle of a tablecloth or the fluttering of of birds as they get the, as they get scattered out of the scattered out of the brush you feel a sense of threat but mm-hmm. unlike the three hideously sweaty characters on a train station the threat is not visually evident until it's too late in that sequence right like um it it works it works on the cinema level but in a totally different register like like two little perfect mini sympathies one right after the other and it continues with a third symphony to introduce to claudia cardinal as she approaches the town yes it's it's one of the most amazing uh bits of camera work as as uh she enters into the uh the station uh mm-hmm. and the town is being built and and the camera, as she's walking through the station, uh, slowly pans up to reveal, without uh, cut, the extent of the town, and hear the lush uh, score uh, from Morricone uh, comes into play, and uh, we hear his kind of ode to this uh, civilization being built in in what might be his most traditionally uh, beautiful score. sequence which is like just uh, brings off such a level of like majesty with like uh, uh, a little hint of melancholy loss just in the undercurrent Mm -hmm. it's really masterful musically but it also is of the right piece for the Claudia Cardinale's Jill character a a tough as nails um, former, uh, uh, former prostitute out from New Orleans who's like um who's never nevertheless her presence manages to be kind of a signal over the course of the movie of civilization of a type 
coming to town. Like, right. And and considering the lawless wasteland that has been Leone's stock in trade in his previous movies, he is trying to actually acknowledge what it means to have civilization for rules and laws and so and so forth. And what does it mean to build in that kind of environment? Right. And, and you said of a type, and I think we've, we've been pretty glowing in our assessment of, of Leone. But if he does have a weak spot, I, I think it is in his uh, vision of women and their place in society. Jill is the most fully drawn female character in Leone and she's meant to have this symbolic nobility but even she is somewhat reduced uh, I think at least by modern standards in a way that uh, I, I don't think it's unfair to, to, to call sexist we haven't really seen full-blooded women characters in, in the films until Jill and uh, Jill um has to deal with uh, 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 basically a rape scene. And even as when described uh, how she can represent the uh, the civiliza- civilizing of the West, uh, one of the characters, Cheyenne, indicates, well, you know what? If somebody just happens to pat you on the ass, that's just all right, too. <laughs> and and we're going to, when we get into Leone's last film, we'll, we'll have to revisit this a little. But I, I, I do think kind of the, there's a little bit of the elephant in the room here with uh, Leone not really knowing how to handle women. Um, it's, uh, it is right. It's a, it's a level where he's, um, going further in, um, once upon a time in the West than he, than he has, than he has before. And, um, more, I, I think it's a little more of an issue than, uh, from the pat on the ass from uh, Cheyenne, who is after all a roguish, he is a roguish figure who delights mm-hmm. in, who delights in upending, uh, people's expectations, but knowingly so, unlike like Tuco, who grabs whatever he can. Right. Like there's a sequence. Um, his introduction do- is is done in his is also remarkable, but done in his and done in his own way. But before before we even get into that, it's I kind of think it's interesting how like it shows like at, near the end, Jill is able to help civilization by cooking for everyone. Right. <laughs> that might yeah. be a little, <laughs> that to me is a little more, well, okay. <laughs> That's uh, like the selection of role possibilities of, um, uh, um, of women in Leone's Westerns is, <laughs> is, is definitely a, a, a limited, a limited one. But, but then also you, ha- I think we also need to consider it's been, it was been a, quite a while since there is an actual, fair examination like honestly the fairest examination i've seen has been like uh, meek's cutoff and um mm-hmm. the and the and the homesman which is like came out five years ago so if leone is 40 years early than that like right. i i don't know like i would ha- i would have to i mean i guess the hawksian the i guess the hawksian ladies of films like red river have have more agency than Leone, so he is definitely a step backwards. Uh, on that I, I, yeah, and I would say it could be viewed as 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 much a Western problem as a Leone problem, except that we'll also see this in a later film of Leone's that is not a Western. That's true, and then also Ford had Ford had his um 
Ford had some moments like the uh, roll of feathers in Rio Bravo as sure. well. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, Leone's attitudes get to be a little uh, uh, get to be retrograde or retrograde out in out in this film. But, but nevertheless, it, even though it might be five steps back from like like uh, uh, American portrayals, it's still a step forward from the kind of landscape he's doing because he's introducing. Uh, femininity and womanhood into a mythic landscape right. and giving it a and giving it a sense of presence in the world in the world that he created it's like and and in that like in that sense it's like every four all of these four main characters kind of like get the greatest introduction that they can of all time you know like and it and it and it does this continues the same way with Cheyenne Cheyenne appears at this bar slash trading post which, by the way, I have to think like um, uh, Tarantino was using a f- book of sketches of <laughs> not sketches, but photographs of this set to use for the Hateful Eight, uh, because it is just about as detailed and rich an environment as um, as uh, Tarantino did in his film. Uh, it, not not more so. And Cheyenne is a, a Cheyenne, as shown by Robards. He's a talker. Uh, he's a he's a self promoter. And, um, uh, and he likes to play, he likes to play with people's expectations. He likes to go and like, uh, uh, like upend people, upend people's behavior. And there's a great sequence where in this, in this bar, which is like, is lit from all these very, which has a level of gigantic depth to it. Like it really shows off just a level of production value and, Mm -hmm and care and detail that's Leone's now able to imbue with now in every square inch of the camera frame. And they, and it's a, there's a sequence where he hears a harmonica off in the distance and he takes a lantern that's been hanging off a wire and slides it over to which the lamp, the light from the lantern goes and reveals Bronson's harmonica player as the light shadows play upon his hat and his face in an air, in an eerily similar in an effect eerily similar to what Hitchcock did with uh um Norman's mother in Psycho. Right. And this happens somewhere around the 45 minute uh point in the film at which we realize there hasn't really been any story. Yes. We we've basically spent 45 minutes being introduced to characters which in another kind of movie or a movie by another director this could be a problem here. It is a pleasure because every introduction, as you say, is done with such style and, uh, and, and Charles Bronson's, uh, harmonica is no exception. He has this, uh, eerie theme that he uses. We, we've talked about how, uh, Morricone, uh, in the stopwatch in, uh, for a few dollars more mm-hmm. in the, uh, the band at the uh, prison camp and the good, the bad and the ugly. Yes. And here with, a, with, with a harmonica is, uh, taking the score and using it, uh, literally in the hands of the characters to tell us, uh, to tell a story. harmonica is just yes another case where like you 
have you have something that works as on a on a soundtrack level and then it works as a character note level like the same way the 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 themes and the good the bad and the ugly work mm-hmm. but eventually will work itself as an actual story level a way people express themselves through the music that comes in like certainly i think bronson and uh is uh, a kind of a prime example of someone who's probably at his most expressive when he has a harmonica in his mouth. Right. Br- Bronson... Probably it, would have it, helped Death Wish, I guess. Yeah. Br- Bronson is not a great actor, but he is utilized as a type, I think, very well here. And, and people have often asked, well, you know, why not keep Clint... Wouldn't this have been better if Clint Eastwood had, had stayed on? But Bronson has uh, a very painful backstory uh, that uh, explains why he's in town and his uh, relationship with uh, with Frank. And uh, it requires kind of a stony pathos that uh, Eastwood's good humor would uh, not have been appropriate for. And uh, again, Bronson is the one underacting uh, while the others, the others are all, you know, chewing scenery and doing, doing their thing and really uh, being out there. Bronson, you know, could be accused of not acting much, but I think it's appropriate uh, to, to the story because he is the only one who knows why he's in in that town, which makes him uh, very mysterious to every other character. Yeah, I mean, what you I, I'm going to beg to differ on that because what you say like is underacting. I I find in Bronson's case was more like Undertaker acting. <laughs> is like there's um uh, there's a mo- there's a particular scene where he walks uh, behind a um uh, door that uh, uh, a wooden door frame that then proceeds to put out a better performance in my mind. Like he is um to have he is he is interesting in the sense that his stoicism is akin to like what Eastwood's character. And I think Eastwood may have like been offered the role, but he had been tired of either Westerns or, um, or rather Sergio Leone Westerns by that point. But he has that stoicism, that level of control, Mm -hmm. the level, the feeling that like nothing can, the feeling that like nothing can touch him or really affect him. But he actually has the, one of the biggest backstory, biggest backstories, the most, some of the most tragic and horrific events have actually befallen him. So that's a very, that's a very interesting contrast, but I think it would have been a little better served by somebody who like delivers, who could deliver more of a haunted quality, some quality where you don't understand him, but you understand there is something phenomenally off about him. Something like we're a young Christopher Walken from heaven's Mm -hmm. gate, perhaps, or um, like akin to maybe what, maybe something of the lines of what Jake Gyllenhaal does in Nightcrawler. Some sense of like, I don't know what is this guy. I don't know what his thing, but he has a thing. Um, Whereas um, too often when I see him, I get this feeling comes out of him about, Oh, uh, the camera is this way. Okay. Oh, here I am. <laughs> right. I, I feel that's a little harsh, but I understand where it's coming from because uh, Bronson is show is not showing a lot. He's he's holding so much close to the vest. Now, is it because he's not a great actor and couldn't show a lot, or is it because he was cast specifically for that? 
uh, mysterious stoic quality. Uh, the scene where we head into the flashback is pretty re- remarkable because we've talked about close-ups in Leone, and and here we get the biggest close-up of all. We we uh, insanely close to Charles Bronson's eyes as uh, as we move into the flashback and find out uh, that he has a, a a violent history with Frank, and we understand now why. He has come to town, which is to seek revenge on Frank for killing his brother. And we also find out why he has the harmonica, which is that uh, that as uh, as his brother is dying, Frank forces it into his mouth. Yes, it's a right. It's a way of like literally saying like that his pain gets put into music and the music is out there. And the and it's the music that almost animates him and drives him. One of the things I that kind of shocked me when I saw the that particular sequence is is that when is that during for the whole course of the movie, Bronson's wearing a pretty distinctive outfit. Mm-hmm. He's wearing like a this kind of like a, a white uh, a light brown jacket with a very interesting like pattern of squares to it, and notably in a kind of a bleached out environment, he's wearing like one of the few examples of color with like kind of a bright light red shirt. But when he's looking at the flashback to his like uh, uh, se- uh, to his like seventeen or eighteen year old self. He is actually wearing the exact same outfit. Right. <laughs> now, now I don't know what like kind of tailor he managed to pick this up from, but considering you're t- looking at a 17-year-old and then the incredibly hefty Charles Bronson, like they either have a range of sizes or that might be like the made out of the same fabric used to make the Hulk's pants. <laughs> like how does it take the, the guy to gain a hundred pounds and then still fit in that outfit? <laughs> but it, but I think it kind of. So I wonder why Leone did that, right? But it might work in a it might work in a in a totally different way too. It might work in the sense that like it might work in the sense that he is um uh, that he's kind of a s- mystical sense of retribution upon Frank and the horrible things he's done. And I it's kind of a I guess it's maybe some kind it's kind of weird to put a ghostly idea of him his sort of, sort of ghostly presence or what have you, but but I look at the certain things in the movie and it's, and it's really and it seems like pretty interesting in that the first time Frank asks him what his name is, he mentions a name that's not his that's not his own. Mm-hmm. It's the name of a totally different person he's killed. And the second Frank is killed, I mean, then the second time Frank asks him, he gives him a totally different name. And and also Frank has already shown earlier in the movie, he has pretty much no restrictions against blowing kids away. So if, if, if like, um, uh, how did he manage to survive like an encounter with Frank at that point? So it's almost can be that like Frank might, uh, that, that um, the harmonica is just the kind of representative of some sort of maybe Jacob Marley, like payback for Frank, for his, uh, for his evil deeds. Exactly. And and I think that brings us to uh, one of Henry Fonda's uh, most amazing bits of acting, which is uh, Frank's death scene. Uh, and it, it, it occurs not quite at the end, but 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 near the end. And uh, it's it's, you know, as we've seen before in the uh, uh, shootout uh, mode. But um but but Henry Fonda, as he's dying, uh, is made to realize 
who who harmonica is and what he has done and 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 now you 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 get these acting moments that kind of show why henry fonda is such a legend yes he is right he manages to do a sustained death sequence that you are compelled to look at because and and there's a kind of a cliche that like if uh that uh, maybe in maybe in theater more than movies where if someone is dying, they can spend like three or four minutes at, at doing so uh, because they're just showing how important that is. But Fonda completely makes it work because you see the collapse of his body and his character and his soul through the way he slowly descends into the earth. And when he finally makes the realization of just who is this person that shot him, it's just a moment, a motion of like the left of his eye mm -hmm. that shows that point of recognition. Like what looking at this film, like for this podcast, I was amazed by just the phenomenal level of acting developed on Fonda. It is on a, it is, it, it takes like Leone's, Leone's like raw material of like these iconic moments and these super dramatic scenes and gives it this whole other dimension like one dimension is is that like like um e, um uh Wayne's character from the searchers he's also a um uh, a gunman who's on a way out as civilization is getting built around him he's mm -hmm. finding his own job is obsolete but unlike Wayne's character he is not stoic about it at all he's raging against it at different points in the movie has these levels of like jealousy bitterness like false sense of false sense of confidence about his his own success and he he's employed by a, a rail he's employed by a um a railroad baron who travels on a car which um which uh, a railroad car which has a descending grid that lets the baron walk because the baron has a crippling has a crippling ailment and and the Baron and the uh, more um, the Baron has his own uh, fascinating story, but uh, Frank's interaction with him is just really robust. Like, right, he makes of, he mm -hmm. makes the point that uh, whereas Frank has uh, guns as his weapons, he has money as his weapons. Yes, and 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 right, and and Fonda's Fonda's reactions to that is is all sorts of different shades of of of, of envy disgust at like how this crippled person can have the edge on him and in some ways and uh uh but also a level of also a level of like greed and then on top of that there's a sadistic way about like how he can have one over on him just because of his physical superiority mm -hmm. that even includes like kicking the crutches off of him at one point <laughs> and 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 all these levels of characterization are not even done through like the as the words that Fonda's character expresses so much as like just his posture and the re and his facial reactions to how he has to deal with this railroad baron. Mm -hmm. And and the railroad is its own character in in the film as well. The 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 dramatic scope of of the movie we've talked about uh this the town being built we've talked about uh the idea that civilizing agents could uh change the lawless west into something closer to what uh you know to, to what we see now and uh 
the railroad is, is integral to that. It, it's considered, you know, the, the basic plot involves where a railroad station is going is going to be built, and mm-hmm. and, and 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 like it does in so many westerns, uh, the railroad comes to symbolize the end of the West. Um. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. That's right. He's um, uh, and it also like it not just just British civilization, but kind of also the like heightened kind of level of like intellectual or cultural like elitism that like um that Leone's a little bit um uh, uh skeptical about mm-hmm. because the some um, um the the um uh railroad the railroad baron's grid that he uses to walk inside his car is this kind of either pol- is either gold or this polished brass that's meant to shine as if it's gold just some way of showing that like you can go and impose like through your own money you can impose your will upon mm-hmm. the area but it's also uh, also i find like his his railroad car is just a little too ostentatious i mean it has a chandelier in it for god's <laughs> sakes <laughs> it also has it also has like something like uh, a whole three bookcases with like a couple hundred books it's like i mean i guess there are long boring <laughs> train treks but is he really need to put a library in well, there? Well, it's basically his home, for, from what we could tell. Yes. Uh, it, you know, he, you know, he has made this his life's work and has decided to live in this train that uh, gives him the vitality that that he has. Um, yeah. And, and I think, but I, but I think it's notable that uh, the train that actually uh, comes in near the end to build the town up to. Uh, to to show, to to demonstrate the civil the civilizing is not his, the the baron's uh, um, fancy shiny train, but rather uh, a more modest train filled uh, with workers and regular people who are going to be the ones who do the actual work of the town. Exactly right. It's um uh, right. It's a great it's a great little um. That's a I'm glad you brought that up. It's a fun detail to sell, show, like, while it might be these elite highfalutin ideas and also these incredible drive for incredible drive for money that goes and may get this stuff set up. But the structure that gets built is going to be used by a far different group of people and a far more varied and uh, a group of people that we don't even um, uh, that you were never expecting to use on it. You know, I I also want to add that like the Baron himself has his own level of pathos too, which is a very cool move on Leone's part that he that he longs for the sea. And there's a point where he's like looking at a photo at, at a oil painting of the sea, and you just hear and in another great combination of visuals and music and sound design, you hear the waves, but you see an incredible close up of the actual. 3d almost 3d level of the the levels of um layers of of paint that is used to make these waves the mm-hmm. the the um, like the the curvature of the oil in in the in the uh, painting surface is used to for right. the way and it leads to that moment of his like layer demise which is also a great leonian example of irony Right, right, and, and and you know you mentioned pure cinema before, and and, and scenes like the the, the waves uh, in the picture, and uh, a lot of the ones we talked about earlier, you know, that's such an appropriate term, especially as we've applied it to the good, the bad, and the ugly, doing it in one way, and 
and Once Upon a Time in the West doing it in an entirely entirely different way but in in both cases uh, they pretty much take your breath away just just if you go to films to see something you've never seen before you could do that with these two films <laughs> exactly you can go right you can get so much out of and so much out of like viewing this viewing these imagery and um and, and and just picking up a feeling of place, a sensation of of the characters and their wants and their desires and and their motivations. You and you just get that out of just the impressions that the vision, that the sound and the image go in and make that can make on you. And like in a certain way, like it, it's it's it becomes incredibly rewarding, especially upon multiple visitations, because the in, the individual plot details almost become like. Not superfluous, but because they just become like merely supporting what the imagery is already able to go and uh, um, uh, deliver for you. Um, um, that that being said, I do have a little bit of a confession in that, like I was, I was pretty, re- I was a little bit uh, holding this um, uh, movie in a little lower regard, and I think it's a fair question for us to ask. In that, like, do you think this movie is better than The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly? Or not. So I guess we'll just ask that. Then. What, right. what do you think? I, I do not. I, I still think The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly is is Leone's best film. I think it's more primal. Uh, I, I think it, uh, it, you know, it's it's more fun. I, I think it, it, it brings together kind of everything, you know, I've ever wanted <laughs> in a film. And uh, the Once Upon a Time in the West is a little more complicated. I mean, it has these moments that that are as good as anything in the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I and and, and you know, it becomes kind of a personal taste preference. I would never argue with somebody who who chose Once Upon a Time in the West, but um, but but it's doing something so completely uh, completely different, uh, more complicated, more involved, but perhaps a little less primal. More complicated, more involved, but less primal. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I ha- I share your, I mean, I share your curiosity upon like, uh, and 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 I'd like to see what the impressions are of people who do hold, um, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West in higher regard. I because I am with you for the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was something which, it is to me such a perfect expression of, of Leone's like just genius with. Uh, camera and combining sound and image and performance mm-hmm. into making an iconic world like this mythic this mythic world you could descend descend into and putting in moments of just us amazingly high drama mm-hmm. like the fe- feeling like like the most emotion the most suspense the most action the most adrenaline and and the most desolation the uh, the most triumph and the most, even the most irony, maybe even, <laughs> like to put it at just such a high level with with a film that works on its own terms and and will treat its will treat deference to reality as a distinct second if, of our priority, you know. So I have to admit, though, I have to, I saw the good, the bad, and the ugly first, and that was it may have biased me because I was I've been enamored with this movie ever since I had seen it. And the structure of Once Upon a Time in the West made me like think that like it is 
kind of a fourth version of the dollar story. Right. I it's, think it's really important to establish that it's not. That's right. That's yeah. right. It's looking at it right. Looking at it now, there is a climactic confrontation at the there's a climactic confrontation at the end, just like the climactic confrontation. Yeah, similar to the climactic confrontation in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. But it's not about that kind of conflict at all. And I kind of like take us to I kind of take Once Upon a Time in the West is Frank's story. And because Frank has Frank is a guy out of place and on, and he's railing and he's railing against it. He's railing against the order. Like there's a wonderful little detail, but I think that says so much where he sees this, he finds this one buffoon who's been followed and uh, who kind of has an eerie resemblance to Jack Black, by the way, <laughs> and, uh, and looks at him and just sneeringly says, what do you, why do you, ha- why do you have suspenders and a belt? How do you trust somebody who doesn't trust his own pants to work? <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, since this is since he is a incredibly evil dick, when he decides to dispatch him, he does it by shooting off his suspenders and his belt to, <laughs> to, to, to have him drop that. <laughs> but but uh, but that confrontation to me it, now, when I'm looking at it, I realize it's not. It wasn't about. It isn't about this chance of three iconic like different personalities or iconic mythic symbols of something all in one big conflagration it's it's about frank atoning or reckoning with his past he has to be there and he has to face it and and it's fair that the movie while showing him as a capable gunfighter does not show him as a supernaturally gifted one the same way all the different gunfighters in good the bad and the ugly do right just just uh super evil that's right. But, super, uh, just super right. evil. Super but what, what, <laughs> yes. what? Yeah. But what uh, happens? You know, the, the overriding conflict kind of becomes between uh, past and future, and in that way, um, mm. uh, Frank, Harmonica, and Cheyenne all kind of represent the past. That's right. And it's really only Jill who represents uh, the future. Yes. Yeah. And like um uh, and um. I, I kind of the way I would kind of take it for me that's just for me is that like Frank Frank is has to face his past harmonica is his past and Cheyenne is the chorus the mm-hmm. the, the the guy who is wryly observing what is uh, what what is happening um and so like it uh, in but in terms of like the comparison of the two I just want to see a note that like it does they are working on two kind of different levels and, and once upon a time, despite its fable like title has a little more practical, uh, more practical things on its mind, Mm -hmm. more along the lines of how the West really was, really was colonized. And what does it mean to have a society in, in a way that like the earlier Leone films never did. So it's more robust on that. And it's production value is also more robust. Right. It's, there's more details in every, in every corner of the frame. Um, there's more, there's more intricacy to the composition that makes like the film, the good, the Benioli has like an iconic power to its imagery, but they're more simplistic than the, than the cluttered imagery that happens in, um, in once upon a time in the West. So, so, Ultimately, I think the the power and the purity uh, of of what the myths he's able to make in Good, the Bad, and the Ugly put that considerably over what happens with um, 
with Once Upon a Time, and also the performances, all all three of the main performances fit their characters so well mm-hmm. in a way that I think Bronson's falls uh, falls considerably shorter, which is which is unfortunate. So, so that's that's my take on it, and and I'm definitely curious as to see what others like what others think about it because it's you can definitely see ways in which like um Once Upon a Time does some uh so does some different things that. My, uh, that can that can out and pull it up ahead. connection on the social aspects that were explored in Once Upon a Time in the West made themselves manifest um, uh, considerably higher in um, Leone's next film, uh, Duck You Sucker, made in uh, 1971. Um, this features like a, a very distinctive duo, which almost like visually couldn't be more uh, <laughs> different. A, um, uh, a, um, a bandit uh, named Juan Miranda, played by Rod Steiger, um, uh, finds an uneasy partnership with a um, Irish um, man in uh, exile in America uh, named um, Sean, or is it John Mallory, uh, played by James Coburn, and they forge an uneasy kind of partnership that you would use both their skills to try and rob a very uh, highly guarded bank. Uh, but they find that like robbing it leads to some very interesting complications as they are actually swept in on what's been now a an expressly not just historical but political current that's now made itself in the manifest in Leone's film. Right. It, it, it's somewhat the unfortunately named duck, you sucker. Uh, and it has a, a pretty complicated history of uh, <laughs> release and uh, and names to it. All right. Uh, Do you know any a reason why it was called duck, you sucker? Well, apparently, uh, Sergio Leone was under the impression uh, from visiting America that duck, you sucker was a popular American slang at the time, and apparently nobody uh, bothered to tell him it's actually not. Uh, the, the, there are it did get released under some alternate titles uh, after a very short release under the Duck You Sucker name. It was re-released in the states as a fistful of dynamite to uh, capitalize uh, on the Fistful of Dollar movies. And uh, then in France, it was released under the title Once Upon a Time in the Revolution. Oh, <laughs> that's... Boy, you know, it really leads us to going like... <laughs> want, just sometimes I get really churned by the how how enthusiastic spaghetti westerns uh like are, are willing to exploit themselves like, yes really a fistful of dynamite <laughs> once upon a time i mean they're one step away from saying clint eastwood might be in this movie well, maybe not right well these were all, all marketers doing this oh, not yes, the yes. filmmakers but just, just the sheer <laughs> yes the sheer level of brazenness is just mm-hmm. i find it charming um what i don't find charming is the original title duck you sucker which <laughs> not only is um not it's not just the title of the movie but uh, several times, it's 
unfortunately an attempted catchphrase in the movie. They literally go and say this this phrase um, um, uh, right before something blows up. And it always, always comes across like a lead balloon falling on a falling on the floor. It is it is it it comes across like um, uh, your dad trying to tell you that uh, he used to uh, call himself Groove Master when he was younger. (laughs) He just makes you cringe every single time. And and honestly, like I'm frankly, I'm not even buying that like Leone's theory that like my my you know what? I bet you he like he thought this. Here's what I think. I think he he thought this phrase when he paid a visit to New York City during one of his promotional tours and he received a, a savage beating during a mug. <laughs> and during the beating, they yelled a bunch of things at him, including something that sounded like duck, you sucker. It is, um, uh, except the first word is not duck. It's something that sounds very much like duck. <laughs> like, And he just misheard it because his ears were bleeding or something. I like to imagine Sergio could uh, take care of himself uh, pretty much. But uh, if, you love, if you love the title, you'll, you'll also love the accents. Uh, which, 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 by the way, you know, the, um, Eli Wallach's accent in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly was also kind of ridiculous but because it took place in in, in an otherworldly environment it was eminently forgivable but uh here when we're we're dealing with a historical event and uh and, and, and a film that that's attempting to be more real world than the dollars trilogy um rod steiger puts on quite the outrageous uh, uh mexican accent yeah. uh not to be outdone by james colburn's whose uh whose irish accent could easily be used to sell lucky charms so. <laughs> that's right that's right it's a good thing steiger didn't to go after his lucky charms <laughs> um uh, it is yes they the 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 accents are are, are quite uh, the accents are quite weird and it is kind of counter to it does kind of run counter to like their their story which is um which is kind of attempting to go and look into like real real world like concerns um albeit in a very ironic way which i guess i guess like we're looking at we're seeing leone really likes irony and twists of fate and how like people kind of get what they want but don't not in the right way <laughs> like he um um uh, like um, Rod Steiger's character gets glory out of robbing the bank, but not the kind of glory that he wants, for example. Right, because he just wanted money, but instead he was able to free hundreds of political prisoners, which was not even his plan, and he becomes swept up uh, in in the revolution, which uh, which... Leone had some cynical ideas about, you know, this uh, came out in the early 70s. So uh, we're only a couple years out of a period where revolution was bandied about pretty regularly in politics around the world and and around the world and and in life. And Leone, again, wanted to be a little more cynical. He opened the movie with a uh, quote from Mao uh that was uh i think meant to be pretty ironic it was a revolutionary quote but he seemed to be undercutting it right he, it was the basic gist of that quote was that like revolution's not going to be like a dinner party mm-hmm. it's not going to be a cotillion it's not going to be a, a fun parade it is going to be created out through violence um and 
And while while maybe some people have like taken the quote from like the China from a, from the Chinese leader to be some sort of endorsement for being the intro of the movie, the sentiment of uh, the sentiment is not at all like uh, a value of endorsement. It is rather it is rather an emphasis not upon the revolution, the value of revolution, but the repercussions of revolution. Right. Something that the movie very much has on its mind and on, Ste- and on, and on Steiger's Juan Miranda's character's mind. Exactly, because he, uh, he is not a true believer. He has uh, more practical, um, uh, more, more practical con- concerns, but also... Family when business. Fa- fa- yes, but when faced with... Yeah, he, when faced with... Uh, the concept and with uh, these true believers all around him, he he does say, you know, we are the poor. We are, you know, we have been downtrodden. But uh, but it's really James Colburn's character who's more the true believer. He's uh, he had uh, been an an, an IRA terrorist and had uh, uh, was on the run. Uh, and uh, in in fact, uh, in, as we see in a series of flashbacks, uh, both betrayed and was betrayed uh by his uh, his best friend in uh mm-hmm. very um strangely shot flashbacks in 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 slow motion and impossible greens and uh and, and something that 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 comes off maybe a little cheesier than uh, most of leone does yeah absolutely you like it they they come across in a way that you would almost see terrence malick telling him oh calm the hell down nature's not that beautiful <laughs> <laughs> you 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 guys are frolicking altogether way too much um uh, and and yeah, it's and it's interesting to see how like Leone's concerns, his his concerns of the story, like are are moving in one direction, kind of more towards being involved in the world on a, on on levels of politics and society. But his presentation becomes almost more mystical. That scene is that that scene when the flashbacks of Sean are done in this like very much of a dreamlike qual, a, a full dreamlike quality, mm-hmm. like a level. Not even a maybe even a dream, but like of a fantasy quality. Like the, they're almost to me, I almost get a sense of like they never were like that, you know. Right. right. Um, but then, like his, it seems to me also that like Coburn's character is kind of, I think, like you said, he's kind of the more the ideal of revolution. Like he he had the idea of revolution being an uh, or or um, revolt or resistance is something on his mind, and he kind of has the more mystical treatment because he actually even emerges from a cloud of smoke. Right, yeah, he he is an explosive expert who yes. uh, uses, uh, I believe, nitroglycerin to glycerin mm-hmm. to uh, cause major major explosions. Yes, uh, so you you have a kind of a contrast between uh, a bit of happy go luckiness of of the two characters, uh, at least at the beginning, with some of the most brutal uh, portrayals of war in all of Leone. Uh, most notably, there's a scene of mass execution uh, near the, near a train station of people in pits being uh, shot down by the hundreds that actually looks like and is meant to recall uh, a Holocaust imagery. And, and th- th- this is pretty intense stuff for, for a Leone film. Yeah, it's um, right. It's showing like uh, for maybe the first time like it's the 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 violence is literally shown to be part of the role that society is imposing on it it's not a bunch of individual bad people wandering around uh 
an open world doing bad things. It's that the society itself is taking individuals and then showing how their li- how quickly their lives are being stuffed up, not by just how harsh nature is or how harsh the natural world is, but how how harsh the society has been that has been set up is. And and like these two guys as they go through their as they go through their like schemes, they end up like going out and, and changing the world and actually changing their own perspective, which is also a kind of a development on Leo on development on Leone's case. Mm-hmm. You know, where they they have a level of they have a level of growth or at the very least like increased appreciation right. that like and their involvement in the ongoing revolution, especially when it comes with on the case of like a particular doctor who is one of the leaders of the revolution, just actually looks at these comical figures and lets them come to like a more human, uh, gives a more human dimension to their. And also Rod Steiger does that as well. I was making fun of his accent a little earlier, but beyond the accent, the, the, the acting he does with his eyes, the, uh, the level of emotion he brings to his character is really impressive. Steiger, Steiger's a great actor and, and he is giving it his all here. Mm-hmm. You're right. He, right. You're getting more of a sense of like his, um, <laughs> like, like the, his compatriot in, um, in, uh, um, uh, ugliness or opportunism, like Tuco he is a guy who reacts and acts to things in one way. Like if he sees something, he takes it. If he if someone attacks him, he immediately reacts. Whereas Steiger's uh, Miranda can be a cauldron of conflicting of conflicting emotions that are literally vying within himself mm-hmm. as to what he does. And among those is an ever growing sense of the value that he he actually develops a friendship with this and a level a sense of loyalty to this very very different person in uh, in. Uh, in Coburn Sean character, like there's a fun moment at the there's a fun moment in the beginning where he asks who the na- his name is and um and says uh, and Coburn says it's uh, Sean first, then he says it's John and then like um uh, Steiger's response is wait I'm Juan you're John like it's it's and he's his his arm is literally in his spastic motion as he tries to sort through this it's destiny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And it should be no surprise that uh, Leone originally wanted Eli Wallach for that role, mm-hmm. but but Steiger, I think Steiger, I think was the right person for that role. At the, I mean, or rather, he gives he gives levels of it that I'm not saying Wallach was incapable of doing, but it's levels that like it's levels that Wallach was not doing as Tuco, and and like in addition to like the all the different conflicts that are that are clearly apparent when Steiger is is conflicting with himself against what decisions he should make but he also has a religious component that's actually taken seriously he actually has conversations that with, with, with god asking what he could do what he needs to do in a certain situation like his uh, religious his religious um iconography is prominently placed on his body and on top of and on top of all that like he is uh is very articulate upon in his own like in his own like like um he doesn't use fancy words but he's but he's very articulate about the usefulness or uselessness of revolutions right right he's lived mm-hmm. through these things and he's very willing to express like what the, like how how useless he's found them and how the how it affects the downtrodden at the expense of people who like read books and as he puts it they sit at tables and they sit and talk and talk and talk and eat and eat and eat. <laughs> <laughs> Duck you sucker finds itself in this 
strange place in in the Leone filmography because it, it follows the two grand masterpieces. And I, I think you'd probably agree, Duck, You Sucker is not a masterpiece. But I do think Leone at this stage is kind of incapable of being dull, boring, or just going through the motions. So it, it's it's an impressive film in, in its own right. It deals with you know these revolutionary ideas uh, more seriously than most films of the time. It it has these really engaging performances, and the Leone style, while dialed back a little bit from the epics, is still there and still impressive and uh i think we you know i've been uh, a little more critical of this one but at the same time i i have to say you know weighing weighing the balance i i, I think it it comes more positive than negative do you, what, what do you think about i that? i mean yeah no i i agree with you it's the film's doing yeah the film's doing a lot of stuff incredibly well and and leone's actually expanding on his palette in a number of ways like for example no film to this point had so many extras there's so mm-hmm. like the, the the massacre sequence that you had just described useless is it's a slow pan across like these four trenches each containing like hundreds of people as they get slaughtered which was must have been like a logistical nightmare and then there's like there's uh, several sequences of like military operations which are using a scope of numbers of people and and um and use of the environment which kind of almost get the david lean level epics so that's kind of like a way of like him expanding his expanding his repertory i kind of so i it does he does that but then he also does the elemental levels like the like stuff with smoke and fire and darkness he's he's he he is using that as part of his palette in in ways that like he, he does dial back from making it expressly iconic, making the things, the confrontations about the things themselves. Mm-hmm. They are about more things. And so I don't know if that diminishes. I don't, I don't know if it diminishes it. It might, it might actually, in terms of like, it's, it's iconic power, it's sense of resonance, the way it can survive through the decades in your own minds, you know, but, but like the trade-off of that is that like, is that he's growing into like his concerns and, and I think the fact that he gives these characters more, he gives these characters more of a dimension and actually gives them arcs while not diminishing their like kind of iconic presence, like the very squat Steiger and the incredibly tall, lank, lanky Coburn, you know, he, um, he doesn't really sacrifice that. He really doesn't sacrifice those completely to, to, to his, um, uh, to what he's trying to show, uh, to what he's trying to show in his film. So, so ultimately I kind of think that like, his 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 directorial sensibilities and his the thematic sensibilities of what his films are about at least diverge in just a little way that they don't connect mm-hmm. in a way so beautifully with that even Once Upon a Time in America does. So I think it's a little bit of a lesser work at it, but it's definitely worthwhile to just see like see a guy give another extra level of dimensions to the kind of to the kind of stories uh, stories he has, and also. Has some pretty nice, pretty nice goofy level uh, things as well. Steiger is, Steiger has some, while 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 not a, a in continual delight like Tuco, <laughs> he engages in some really great, really great funny behavior, including just the the really sharp way he tells people, okay, okay, 
okay, in a, in a kind of snarling way that, to me, evokes like the kind of sunny attitude depicted by Pacino in Scarface. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, and it's also interesting is that it explores a dynamic of friendship, a level of things where it isn't about two people like with mutual, who have this mutual thing that they want or a thing in opposition but a level of like connectivity to like where people have a, a, a kind of loyalty out of what they want out of each other and what they want the other person to succeed. And this kind of level of like, you know, this kind of level of like history and this kind of particular look at friendship, I think leads into the next film that he managed that he, that he was able to make, which was um, once upon a time in America out in 1984. This one, he has left the spaghetti western genre and moved over into the gangster genre to make a kind of interesting counterpoint to like The Godfather, which had, um, which had uh, like um, captivated audiences like a decade before. In Once Upon a In Once Upon a Time in America is like the case of a a group of a group of boys in in uh, the uh, who grow up to like run a gangster operation in the um, uh, uh, Jewish um, area in New York City, and and they and it shows the scope of their lives. But jumping back and forward in time from the uh, I want to say the 30s over like to the uh, over through the 60s, um, uh, they feature like a the main members are like um, uh, Noodles played uh, David Noodles played by. Um, uh, Robert De Niro and uh, Max uh, Berkowitz, played by uh, James, played by James Woods, who was then not quite has not did not quite reach like levels of like the stardom that he right, was, it was to get an early James Woods role. Yes, and um, and their two and their two main friends, uh, Patsy and uh, Ka- and Cockeye, as they um, it goes, it shows how like they. Like uh, their rise to fortune on the backs of the prohibit on the backs of the prohibition era, and what happened afterwards uh, during prohibition's repeal, and then a look at uh, De, at De Niro's uh, Noodles Aronson character as he, as now as an old man, he gets a message that sends him back to New York, and he and he comes back to just try and solve a mystery as to what happened that caused him to leave thirty years before. Well, Once Upon a Time in America, like a lot of Leone films, uh, has a somewhat of a tortured production history, only in this case even more so. It's a movie that Leone wanted to make uh, for at least a decade uh, prior, and uh, and it's based on a book called uh, The Hoods by Harry Gray, and... Then when it finally came out in 1984, in the United States, it was released 
in a horribly butchered version. Uh, the there was originally a six hour cut, which eventually, in the, for the European release and the release that Leone approved, ended up somewhere uh, close to four hours. But the American uh, studio decided not just to uh, to cut that by half, but to also reorder the scenes. Uh, the film is told in a very involved flashback uh, strategy where uh, Noodles is uh, is shown in an opium den uh, getting his fix. And you see various points of his life as his memories uh, from this opium high. What the American version does, did was put everything in chronological order and as a result of that made Nothing makes sense. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people, a lot of people who initially saw this upon its release came away thinking it was a terrible film because uh, the, uh, the American edit was fortunately since then, uh, Pretty soon after its home video release and in various DVD and Blu-ray versions since then, the European version has become the standard version. It's the version that we are talking about here, not the uh, the American edit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the the flashback structure is is a is a really fascinating in that like this is Leone exploring yet another kind of dimension that he didn't that he's that it was tangential in in other films. And Ed is dealing with memory and regret. Like, um, like this was something that drove characters in his earlier films. But in, in this movie, it is the story. It is the idea of like, what is it of, of, of a life that was lived and a life that was lost or not. And, 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 and like opportunities that opportunities that have been forsaken and, and, the and th and things that you expected or wanted that are have been found missing and just how the past just keeps like harkening back to you and like it like it does this in the beginning with another great Morricone sound and feeling touch of having the longest ringing telephone mm -hmm. in film history <laughs> i believe something like a sustained ring as de niro's in the in his in the opium den it's ringing like like it is using the ring like the bell like for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for like um, it tolls for noodles a decision that he made like the family and friends of his that have been affected by that decision, and it's calling to him from the depths of his opium haze mm -hmm. to to arise him. Right. Um, the this 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 film is on such an epic scale with uh the you know the fr telling the story from their childhood uh as they're just learning uh the ways of the street and committing their first crimes and falling in love and whatnot mm -hmm. to uh their performances as as young men who uh gaining gaining power and you really see this uh uh, friendship in, in both these sequences between uh, the Robert De Niro character and the James Woods character. And what, uh, what Leone does that, that is pretty amazing is, is 
just gives the entire project such such uh, stately beauty to it. Uh, the poster shows this uh, uh, scene of uh, probably the Brooklyn Bridge uh, shown between two buildings, and that's an actual scene from the film. And it's breathtaking. It's done in these sepia colors that that recall the time. And yeah. uh, it's a literally a monumental image. Right. Right. <laughs> um, and, and so, but it, but but it, but it's much more realistic than Leone's westerns. It's much more attempting to show uh, a, a historical period piece, and yes. it's very successful in that regard. Yes, like Leone has shown, like in starting from Once Upon a Time in the um, in the West, he started to show that he really was started caring a lot for intricate detail in his frames, like, like all sorts of like knickknacks, doodads, posters, signs are all made being made manifest in this world that he was creating. And it, and it built up to a, to a great level of vermilitude in uh, once in once upon a time in America. It just feels like such a lived in place that feels like a real lived in, uh, that feels like a real lived in place. And has like like everything from like these uh, authentic like um so authentic uh, authentic signs like storefronts like fruit stands um uh, uh, alleyways cars outfits like it all the period detail of it is exquisite and like and really gets you the like this feeling of a uh, feeling of connection to uh to a time and place in the United States which is really amazing all the more amazing for a guy who very rarely, you know, visited. And mm-hmm. like, you know, maybe the last time he was in New York, someone said something like duck, you sucker to him. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yes, the, right. The, the period detail on it is, is a one is a wonder to behold, you know, and, and, and it, and it's also in, um, very similar to Goodfellas and how it, the detail manages to pervade through across the decades but but unlike Goodfellas, there's a level of, I think that like Leone does a level of showing how things stay the same in that kind of world and how things have di- how things have uh, differed both in the places and in the people like the like the these um um the bridge and the neighborhoods may have some some of the stores are the same but some have boarded up mm-hmm. some have there's new there's new shops now that in the 60s there's some hippies hanging around at the train station whereas before it was people in like people in flapper hats and uh, and getting malts and but yet there is enough that you recognize that this is the same place albeit from like a a 20 or 30 year distance and it's kind of also the same thing for like the characters you see how they've there's characters who have grown but then you see how they're like and you see how their personalities have still come through over the years. Like one of my favorites is a nice comic turned by a, a girl, a young girl in the neighborhood who will happily um, have some sort of exchange, some favors for mm-hmm. cupcakes. And she eventually grow, uh, grows in, uh, into a, uh, into a lady whose behavior has gotten her some measure of success. Right. Right. And, <laughs> and, and unfortunately that also leads to uh a discussion uh, that we'd have to have in in, in dealing with this film, uh, which is we alluded to when talking about Once Upon a Time in the West, 
but it is probably even more egregious here is a uh, a disturbing and but more to the point probably for from a character development point of view unnecessary rape scene uh between uh, Robert De Niro and Elizabeth McGovern who um uh, is is playing uh the, the the girl he's loved since childhood and is now actively courting and you know we because we're meant to have some identification with uh De Niro's character it's uh pretty off-putting that uh that all of a sudden he would uh, basically take this uh, this date and, and turn it into a, a rape situation and and again I'm I'm not sure it's organically fit into the plot very well it seems like it might have just been there for effect yeah it's um right it's that is um that is one of the 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 most controversial sequences in. In the film, and I think it's worthy to go and like, just go see why Leone would why Leone would put into it because he is not. I never take even even at his most even at having people do some reprehensible thing. He, Leone has never come across to me as being like a De Palma level vulgarian. You see what I mean? Something where like he would do something just for the sheer exploitative you know exploitative value mm-hmm. you know like really focusing on a gaping wound or what have you you know like so he seemed to me to always be somebody who like would go and like put would put some sort of thought behind why he would make the decisions he does and that sequence that you that you're talking about is depicted in a very very brutal way it's not done for like the de niro's character benefit whatsoever it's meant to show that what he is doing is is horrific and, 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 and horribly wrong. So, so like, why is it there? I mean, it comes from, uh, I mean, the setup of it comes from that, like, as you had said, like uh, noodles had been pining for this, um, uh, De- uh, Elizabeth McGovern's character, Deborah for ever since they were kids. And Deborah has always been someone who, uh, wanted to go, go surpass her, uh, her neighborhood origins. Like she wanted to, she started off doing ballerina dancing and eventually um, she um, wanted to go and get um, an opportunities to go to Hollywood and be a, and be a, and be a star. And she kind of had a level of attraction to noodles, but she also kind of kept him at bay. In mm-hmm. fact, sometimes even earlier in their history, when they were kids, just referring to him as a cockroach, <laughs> like there is a, there is a way where like she, she thinks of him and she's saying him not necessarily as like a lower kind of person than he is, than she is, but rather that somebody whose ambitions and who feels that his not his station is below hers. And so the situation that ended up happening was uh, in the movie is that he goes on this. Now that he has money, he's been successful in his gangster operations. So he goes and rents out an entire hotel to showcase, uh, entire hotel's restaurant, rather, to go and uh, showcase, like, a date with her. And they have a date at the table by themselves. Uh, and then they go and hang out on the, hang out on the beach. And, they're, and they talk about their, and they talk about their lives. And there, there, Elizabeth, and there, Deborah goes and mentions that she is going to Hollywood the next day. And so Noodles, who at the time was thinking this might be the start of a beautiful relationship, that he finally feels that he is a person worthy enough, maybe in a kind of a Gatsby-like level, mm-hmm. to to be worthy of her. He realizes that he doesn't, um, that 
that is no that there was no that not only that opportunity is not there but it might never have been there and so so then as they're driving back like um deborah gives noodles a kiss and i think in one of it's kind of the one of the bigger problems in that scene is that it's a very robust kiss it's not a chaste level mm-hmm. i i really care for you and wish you well kind of thing there is a level of sexual intimacy that is implied in there and it's the kind of the thing that in the scene seems to push noodles seems to push noodles over the edge and i mean i i mean i kind of take that scene to be something like how how noodles it's something maybe akin to how um the character in fight club bashes a guy's head in Mm -hmm. and then and it's it's also a horrible scene depicted absolutely viscerally and they ask why on earth did you do that thing and he said i wanted to go destroy something beautiful and i think that's might be i mean that's the closest i think i can get to what he's leone's trying to do and one of the one of the problems here is not only you know because there obviously are, are you know rape is something that is dealt with and should be dealt with in film but um uh, the the problem we come across here is that there are no other uh, female characters who are are contrasted and more fully drawn out um, as important in, in these very male lives. Uh, and, and and another slightly disturbing aspect to it is is in the flash forward when uh, an older Noodles uh, comes back and. Uh, and meets the uh, Elizabeth McGovern character again. Uh, and a lot of time has passed, but still she is remarkably civil towards him, considering what had happened uh, in their last encounter. You look at what she names her kid and you go, really? Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is what you're... It, right. It's... Yeah, I think one of the bigger failings of that sequence is to to fail to give proper respect to the repercussions of how that would affect um, both those characters. Like it's, it's most egregious in like not showing like the kind of effects and the kind of responses that Elizabeth, that that Elizabeth McGovern's Deborah character not only should or could have had, but was absolutely deserving of having a moment to go and rectify those kind of like some sense of dealing with what has happened to her. Um, and we don't get that. And on on Noodles' side, it seems like the movie just it, it it comes across as an incredibly, incredibly brutal and character rending moment for a character who up to that point was kind of being treated like a surrogate, like sort of our guide to this world of like history and memory. Well, right, and, because the James Woods character is the one who's more you know, what we've come to know is the Joe Pesci role kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, blowing his top and instinctual yeah. and, and taking risks. And, uh, and, and De Niro, uh, you know, plays noodles as, uh, you know, more conservative, more, uh, you know, more deliberate. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm, and, and, um, yeah, that's right. It's right. It's when part of the movies, part of the movies, Pur- not purpose, but its its aims is to give us on our journey, but we need someone to go and feel we want to be on this journey with, and uh, and 
by coming out of left field the way it does and, and putting in such brutal, it, it does, it gets a lot of air out of our willingness to see what's going to happen with noodles and the rest of his story. Right. Especially because, um, again, I'm not sure how essential it is to the main relationship of the film, which is between noodles and max. And then, and so I, th- I think that leads to the question is how do you, uh, how do you, th- how, what do you think about how this relationship is explored and how these two friends from childhood end up in a situation of, uh, of loyalty and mistrust with each other? That part, that part I unequivocally love. I love it. It is, it is, um, because it's so cool to see that kind of a, like, uh, attention given to the dynamics of a very um, particular kind of friendship. There's a, there's a scene, there's a scene in the middle where they've um, invented a way of um, for local gangsters to be able to keep their drugs if they need to throw them overboard. Mm -hmm. And they, um, and the sequence has, which is a wonderful visual in its own right, where they leave some balloons with some salt that when the salt eventually dissipates, the balloons come up and, they go then, and the kids are in the the kids are in a boat in the water, the uh, the the kids are in a boat in the water as these balloons come up, and their plan is working. So they all they're all embracing. Max embraces Noodles. They both fall in the water. They're still enjoyment because their scheme has been working. But Noodles looks around and Max is nowhere to be found, and he's yelling, "Max, Max, where are you?" And then Max is already back on the boat, but he was hiding, and he's laughing at him. I love that sequence because. If you really look at those implications, that's their dynamic. Mm-hmm. Max, there's a there's a sense where Max is an outsider, and he feels an, he feels some connection with how Noodles has a connection with the neighborhood, and he wants he wants that kind of connection, that kind of thing that Noodles can do effortlessly. But Noodles, by contrast, he he is is not torn apart, but he has a issue with like a very much a reluctance to get above what he thinks is his station. Right. He has a level of self doubt and he has a different reaction to Max. He's always reacting bad. uh, He's always reacting negatively to the kind of ambitious schemes that Max has, but, but, uh, and Max's, Max's ambitions, sometimes they have folly, but sometimes they're, sometimes they're good, but he always goes back to noodles to try and, because because there's part of the thing that he feels that he like he has a sense of friendship about how they were able to stick together, but also there's things about him that he like he values and he values because they're not part of Max, like like the like the um like Max is way more out of control, for example, with for for example with women, and he just doesn't have those qualities on on uh, on Noodles' side that that he wishes he had, or that level of reserve. The level of knowing the right thing to do in this or that particular situation, mm-hmm. and so yes, yes, but but ironically enough, then it is Max who enacts kind of the master plan of the film, right? Uh, which is to uh, fake his own death, mm-hmm. and this bring the, 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 this brings new levels of guilt to Noodles, and uh, yes. and then when you find out what happens to Max, what that Max had, had betrayed him on a number of levels and becomes this successful, uh, uh, politician in, in, in town. And, uh, but, but then 
as we head to the end of the film, has to deal with his own levels of guilt, which may be even more intense than Noodles. Yes, uh, yes, that's right. I mean, his guilt might be his guilt might be higher, but because his ambitions were higher, mm-hmm. because he reached because he reached more, and like and look at the way he wants to. He takes like he takes things from Noodles that is more than he than more than like noodles ever really deserved for all the betrayal that he did, but he takes them to try to make it his. And then he realizes that it's just still not enough. And it leads to kind of like, it leads to problems in Max's, uh, in Max's future. But like he is, um, there's a very telling sequence, which is by the way, this film is really good at doing these echoes and mm-hmm. these, these, th- this dynamic is expressed through almost all these actions that the characters make. There's a very notable sequence in a, where they want to, co- where they want to um, uh, put the squeeze on a police officer. <laughs> so they switch out the tags for the babies so that his, he doesn't know who his kid is, his newborn infant is. And this leads, of course, to a conversation where they say, yeah, wouldn't it be amazing if you're switched at birth? Who's to say you weren't? Right, because he doesn't just uh, switch the policeman's baby. They switch all the babies in the nursery so that that nobody can figure out who belongs to who. Yes, yes. And in a way, that's kind of like, that's kind of what the movie is also saying. Like, where does the the person come from his environment? It's Mm -hmm. also telling that Max does not come from that area of New York. He is an interloper. And I kind of found that's central to his personality. He is an outsider. He always feels an outsider, you know, and it's kind of like, oh, and he's just looking for a way to go and have himself, you know, fit and like have his, he knows what he wants for success, but he's also trying to go and have his success fit in this world. Like it's akin to like one of the charming extra dimensions that, um, uh, that Steiger does with his Juan Miranda character is that while he's a horrible, while he, while he behaves horribly in, in, in a rube-like manner in certain cases, he at least knows he needs to keep his voice down in restaurants. Mm-hmm. He needs to like use utensils and he, he understands there's a sense of propriety where he's outside, you know, and in, and that dynamic of friendship, I think they shows two different levels of it, you know, like Max's ambitions can't match his sense of not belonging and Noodle's sense of lack of ambition is doesn't fit his sense of of, of not worthiness. Right. So isn't it an interesting decision that it's Noodles that we follow? Uh, yes. When when it's Max that's the more active character. Yes. And and on a pure action basis is taking on more of the protagonist role. But we are following the more passive character and watching the story unfold through his point of view. Mm-hmm. Yes, Donald, that's a really interesting point. It even ties into like, well, the kind of character who needs to escape a situation and his escape is to go to an opium den and literally like erase his um, <laughs> erase his problems chemically. Right. Which uh, open, brings us to one of the uh, questions of the film, uh, which is since it is told as an opium flashback, how uh, how trustworthy is the flashback? Yes. Well, that, that's right. There's um. Yeah, I mean, there's a sequence at the um, uh, there's a sequence at the end, which is um, uh, where it ends on him having the flashback. And I should correct myself; it's not even a flashback. Is it's it's the middle period noodles. Right. It, it's De Niro as a young man. That's so exactly right. He is not just remembering his past; he is 
at least from a, a, a film point of view, looking into his future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's 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 a really interesting way of looking at it because yeah, he um, like noodles like continually puts the um, kibosh, the kind mm-hmm. of phrase on on all these different schemes to like have ambition and like in fact in a in a crucial sequence actually undercuts to literally make lives worse for him and his friends because he doesn't think that an ambitious scheme could work. He always has this reluctance to try an ambitious to try an ambitious schemes right. throughout mm-hmm. the course of it, and so this is the kind of character whose regrets cannot just go from the past to like his actions which have caused harm for others, but can also be the pre regrets of understanding that you're that the life you've lived is not going to amount to a whole lot if all you're going to do is escape, like like Good because point. he you know yeah. and so all maybe maybe like if he even if he does escape he doesn't he can't uh, um uh it's it is even in his own imagination he just realizes the futility of what that would mean and that he feels that he's just all that maybe like the ring that starts the movie that keeps ringing he'll just always feel the need to come back you know mm-hmm. so it could be that all those events in the future could potentially it does fit i think it does fit to be his like that it is possibly his fever dream in the opium den about what what kind of life he won't have, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I I kind of would I kind of would go kind of against it just by the virtue that Leone is so good at showing how the world has changed when when um, uh, Noodles comes back, you know, the just the different ways the neighborhood has like gone to seed or how new things are being built up. He treats that so well of a sense of change, and that change feels so real and true to me that it seems that. It's would be a disservice to just say this is a result of a guy's of a guy's fever dream, and I mean, and ultimately to me, I kind of think it's not in the. I don't find De Niro's character Noodles that imaginative. That's why he. Oh, that's point. why he fails. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's not a guy who would think, "Wow, this world would look so much different," or how would think. You know, he. I think he would just be one of these people who think you can go home again, and things would be kind of the same. Maybe maybe that's a over. Um, overgeneralization of how limited his imagination is, but he is of the two. He definitely has the more limited scope of what possibilities could be, you know. But it also ties me it just just uh, on a quick tangent. It just ties in like the way things persist in the world is so cool, and that like Max brought Max blackmails a cop with a camera, and then later you see his character has surveillance all mm-hmm. over it. <laughs> so like act the way people's be- true nature manifests itself through a different lens literally is 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 pretty cool and but but noodles doesn't also noodles doesn't quite change right at the end he is base he just plows through in a kind of like less imaginative colombo like way right he is acting the, the pond more than acting that's right yes and and so forth and and it leads at the ending there's a point where he refers to someone by a proper name that they're now going by, which I did not really care for that much because the idea that like this is the person's new identity, I'm not maybe and maybe it's part of the assault sequence that happened earlier, but I didn't think Noodles has the moral authority mm-hmm. to go and like say, "Oh, what you did was horribly wrong." See, when I betrayed you, I did it with the best of reasons. <laughs> which by the way, <sighs> 
okay, if you put a little thought to it, it's kind of a, it's a really dumb way of, of trying to, you know, the re, the re, if you wanted to help him, quote unquote, help him, that's kind of one of the worst ways of doing it, you know? Right. Um, and also I wouldn't listen to a masochist about what the best idea to go for. I, I get the sense as we, as you head into the last uh, third of the film that, we're a victim of cut scenes from a longer version because there, there are the, the youth uh, of the characters and even the beginning of them as young adults is played out in such detail. Uh, But the older characters are left uh, again with what feels like missing scenes. Yeah, that's right. Like the, uh, like Patsy and Kakai are given like some really short, uh, shrift in their adult forms, mm-hmm. like uh, uh, which I feel really I feel fairly bad about like William Forsythe, who I really enjoy as an actor, and having him the adult having him as the adult cockeye, he, uh, like led to some interesting potential which I never felt was realized on it. Also, like the movie leaves some kind of plot things left hanging, like like there there's people in pursuit of noodles in the beginning of the movie, and you kind of wonder who are they, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, who are they, who are they working for? You know, the, the central kind of client, uh, the, the central dramatic incident, which causes like noodles exile could have stood a little more examples of the repercussions, not just for him and, uh, but, and his immediate surroundings, but the world at large. Right. So I think we're dealing with a film that, that has some real flaws, but the greatness of what it does right is able to overcome them and that this was Leone's dream project that he had spent over a decade envisioning and and working towards um and ended up being his last film while you know I I don't think it ends up a film at the level of the good the bad and the ugly or once upon a time in America is still a masterful achievement and um i I think a a proud way to to end a career that was uh you know where aside from maybe uh an off start in another genre uh did not have an unremarkable moment Mm -hmm. yes it is um uh, yeah it is a case of like uh where whether through luck um, or the talent or the subject matching his directorial aims. It's kind of a heaven's gate gone right situation in a way because Leone was also known as a perfectionist mm-hmm. uh, who would methodically make do scenes over and over again. And his ambitions kept increasing to use more, more and more, uh, more and more actors and extras and bigger and bigger sets. And his depiction of a world, not just in like as, as full as New York city, as full as that neighborhood uh, where they where they lived, but also through across thirty years, is is just so amazingly ambitious, and and that the fact that the majority of that just managed to be a success through even mo- most of the cutting that had to be done. I would love to see the six hour version because because right. <laughs> you do get the sense of that the that a lot of this brevity and a lot of these incongruous things like perhaps even the assault sequence might even have come from might have been come from some other sketching that had not sketching but other writing that had had to Mm -hmm. face the cutting room floor um and but what's there it, it comes across to me like that it's something that was cut for time 
not cut because the script was done badly or that it was or that they hadn't thought this through that they had stuff to think it through but it was i think his earlier cut of the movie had he had eight hours of footage that he had cut down to six thinking it was two movie it was going to be two movies Mm -hmm. so so but but yes i find that i think from when you look at what is on the screen and what is on the story and especially in the way he's looking at personalities and and these distinct kind of relationships and looking at it with a, a new sense of complexity, especially through time, a level of distance through time that he's now had, now it's being a later film of his career. I feel like this missing footage would could add quite a great deal, just don't even know about, you know? It's this kind of like expansion on... Once Upon a Time in America just kind of showed that, like, he, like, Leone had managed to, like, take, like, what his, his qualities, like, and be able to, like, move them through all sorts of more and more dimensions, like, through more of his films. And, and like, he was, while starting by making, like, a genre, like, making a genre piece, but already making it his own, and then transcending the genre, the deal on history and politics and and literally going and looking at cases of character and community and place and time um he was um throughout his career he seemed to go and like um uh, uh be able to move his talents out in more and more varied and uh, multi-dimensional ways but wow what a talent that managed to burst out with um uh a fistful of dollars, huh? Or Ab- a fistful of dollars, sorry. Ab- absolutely. Uh, you could, if you, we talked a little bit at the beginning about the state of the Western before Leone, and now it, after Leone, not just his own films, but the entire landscape had changed. First of all, hundreds of spaghetti Westerns uh, came out in the wake of uh, of the Dollars trilogy. And... Uh, to be honest, I, I I've only seen a handful, so I I can't claim expertise, but they are some of the more acclaimed ones, and they're 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 certainly entertaining and have their moments, but they don't reach the the level of what Leone did. Uh, some of the some of the ones that uh, get a lot of attention, of course, are, are is Django by probably the second most. Uh, uh, acclaimed of the spaghetti western directors uh, Sergio uh, Corbucci and uh, and of course Django famously uh, influenced Quentin Tarantino who made uh, Django Unchained Django Unchained uh, some other really know my favorite of the non Leone spaghetti westerns is uh, Death Rides a Horse starring Lee Van Cleef uh, who also starred in kind of the more lighthearted Sabata movies there's uh, the Great Silence uh, with uh, Klaus Kinski, a very strange, dark movie that takes place uh, in the snowy tundra. Um, and uh, Henry Fonda returned to the genre in more of a, a lighthearted role in uh, My Name is Nobody. <laughs> and and uh, then decades later, there's a, a, a very fun uh, takeoff of the spaghetti westerns uh, made in Italy called uh, 800 Bullets. 
that imagines uh, a little boy growing up uh, in a uh, in a in a in a Spanish town where uh, the, the the westerns were shot and uh, working with the uh, spaghetti western actors. But beyond the, the spaghetti westerns. You also have uh, traditional westerns changed very much. Uh, when Clint Eastwood started directing, uh, you know, he he started his westerns like uh, High Plains Drifter and uh, uh, Pale Rider to Unforgiven. None of these could really have happened without uh, what Leone did. Uh, Sam Peckinpah is another great example. In 1962, he makes... Ride the High Country, which is a traditional classic Western and a great one. But then, post-Leone, he gives us the Wild Bunch. Yeah, Wild, I mean, isn't that amazing? Like, on Peckinpah's, like, yeah, Peckinpah is a case where he uses, like, the violence is so, oh, is it, you say it's over the top, but it's also incredibly on point. It expresses, like, the internal feelings that he he had on lo- on, on loyalty and, and masculinity but just expressed in such a lurid form that you like feel the harshness of of those feelings and expressions through his through his like cinema technique. Right, right, and uh, and and it goes on. You know, uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller from Robert Altman, uh, another kind of alternate view of the West to uh, Blazing Saddles, which is Mel Brooks just you know basically destroys the western and <laughs> literally he goes outside the borders of the western yes right right and and after that after that point westerns became a lot more sporadic just in general we still get uh, a few uh gems like uh, tombstone coming out uh, every once in a while but uh but the spaghetti western there was really no going back to it. There were a few John Wayne movies that came out uh, after after Fistful of Dollars, but uh, but again, the it, it's amazing to see how through one series of movies, one director just changed the direction of an entire genre. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. A, a very rarely do you have a guy who literally can, literally can define not just define but like simultaneously define and transcend his genre like it leads leads me to wonder like is leone the guy you know is he the guy in for spaghetti westerns that is not by that i mean he's the alpha and omega the guy who's not only manages to create the western a spaghetti western but also simultaneously make the best ever example of a spaghetti western that no one can ever really equal, so you should stop making them. You know, like he might be like this kind of singular presence in a uh, own the whole genre to himself in a way. I think that's fair, and I, I mean, I certainly don't want to reduce all the other spaghetti westerns uh, to not worth seeing because there are some that are definitely worth seeing, but expectations. Uh, you know, should should be realized. Again, there we haven't seen every spaghetti western. There could be some incredible gem we haven't run across, and we would love to hear about. We, it for oh, sure. absolutely, absolutely. But you know, from just kind of a sampling, it seems like it's Leone, and there's everybody else. Yeah, it's right. I get that sense myself. That like, and of course, it's not to say that like like that. It renders all like it renders all like spaghetti westerns in, 
other spaghetti westerns like inert and doesn't and and not without and not without value but but in terms of what those even even something like django like in terms of what it's trying to do and in the way that it successfully brings about i mean it is lapped several times over by even Leone's uh, first spaghetti western, mm-hmm. a fist, uh, a fistful of dollars. You know, like film, like spaghetti westerns to me have like, like the silence uses a really interesting novel setting, and um, Django is concerned with life and death in this kind of different metaphysical way than the ones that than the films we've been talking about. But nevertheless, they they don't quite have that. They don't have a sequence that fits that kind of elemental thing like the shootout and the good, the bad, and the ugly, or the or or uh, harmonica's intro in Once Upon a Time right. in the West, or the kids who are dressed in outfits way too fancy for them skipping across this gigantic monument of the Brooklyn Bridge. Right. And and at their best, they resemble Leone. They they the spaghetti westerns that came later all uh, have in some ways uh, taken from Leone and, and and copied many of them, even using uh, Ennio Morricone to uh, yes. to do to do the score. Yeah, we can't like. I mean, we. Uh, I hope we've uh, been able to emphasize like the uh, 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 Morricone's Morricone's effort. We cannot emphasize it. In, we cannot emphasize it enough. Right. right. Very rare. Like much like how different performers work well with certain directors. Very rarely has there been such an effective union between the kind of dramatic music that Morricone is able to do and the kind of dramatic filmmaking that Leone is able to do. I mean, I just like <laughs> I would just like wonder what would happen if like some of these sequences, if some of these sequences in Leone films had, say, um, Herb Alpert playing on the background, uh, they wouldn't come across nearly as well. It was so much fun to uh, review Leone's career. Yes. And I hope you enjoyed uh, listening to us talk about it. Yes. Um, uh, yes. Uh, thanks for uh, going on listening to our tour of uh, a tour of Leone's films. Um, uh, we hope you get a chance to um, uh, take a look at his films in the highest resolution and the widest framing possible. Uh, may you have like a, uh, may you have a theater uh, wide enough to contain his uh uh, imagery at its fullest at its fullest extent and uh, uh thanks again out for like listening out to the director's club um uh you can uh give us like comments and uh, suggestions and criticism over at um directors club podcast at gmail.com uh check us on our website directors club podcast.com uh and we're over at uh itunes for uh directors club podcast uh, I'm Al, and you can find me on Letterbox D under uh, Cinema Al, C I N E M A L, and I have a site called at cinemal2001.wordpress.com. And uh, Brad, is there any place people can hear or read about your stuff? Yeah, you could find me at Letterboxd as well at uh, Brad S. Letterboxd as Brad S. Cool. Hope you hope you guys get to check that out. And um, 
and uh, the uh, some of the other programs out over at the Now Playing Network, like the 1987 Year in Review, Parts 1 and 2, and the Fresh Perspective on King Kong that's just been uh, posted. Um, so um, stay tuned for uh, in the next couple weeks for the upcoming uh, Directors Club episode about uh, Polish filmmaker Andrzej Zulawski. And um, until then, uh, thanks for listening. Catch you later. Catch you later. Bye.